and welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a weekly show that's released every Friday at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time. This is episode 49. On Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City. And my co-hosts tonight are... Dave, Dr. Shock Becker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Wolfman Josh. How's it going, Jay? <laughs> it's really good. Thanks for asking. Do you guys remember that movie, Donnie Darko, by any chance? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, some people call that a horror movie. Some people don't. I'm not here to fight that battle right this minute. But I'll tell you, every once in a while when I'm editing, there are these serendipitous things that happen. Do you remember how in the past, like I'll be editing something and I'll hear something scary or weird in the recording? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, like when I got my throat slit. Yeah, exactly. Or, oh, no, Dave didn't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was extremely disturbing. And I still got to find that ghost voice from Movie Podcast Weekly. But anyway, every once in a while, something bizarre happens. And as I was editing the Friday the 13th a franchise overview from like two episodes ago, there was this really hilarious moment. And it's in the actual final show. And it's very small now. With all this buildup, it's probably going to be very anticlimactic. But for those who have not seen Donnie Darko, there is a rabbit character in there. His name is Frank for some reason. Frank the Bunny, and his voice is very unique. It sounds a little bit like this. Twenty-eight days, six hours, forty-two minutes, twelve seconds. Okay, you remember that? Okay, so then yeah. here's this clip, and for some reason, Doctor Shock turned into Frank the Bunny. Jason Voorhees reaction figures. Guys, <laughs> that's good. It was really short, but did you hear the way he says, nice? <laughs> like, listen, he sounds like Soundwave yeah, from Transformers. Yeah. Okay, hear it one more time. It was very quick. Jason Voorhees reaction figures. Guys. <laughs> that was good. I was just, yeah, it was like. that a little bit. <laughs> it was three in the morning, and maybe that's what it was. I was slap happy, but I was sitting here at three in the morning, and I heard that, and it kind of creeped me out, Doc. Because I'm like, oh, as long as he doesn't say my name in that voice. But anyway, that was pretty funny to me. Okay, so I guess you had to be there. <laughs> no, I, I thought it was, I mean, I saw that in, in the notes that you left, you know, in, in the sort of episode summary you were putting out for the for this show, and, and you had it there, Dr. Shock slash Frank the Bunny, and I'm like, <laughs> what the hell is that all about? Because I I, I was I was wondering what it was, and I, I thought maybe it was a little more than that. The nice, okay. Yeah, I can kind of live with that. So yeah, it's a little um artifact from Skype, apparently. But right. I was well, hoping I'll, this was a new uh, segment of Dave's that we were going to get to enjoy some kind of creepy Frank the Bunny related. Yeah, segment. Oh. where I can make this wave sort of fly out in front of me that it will plot my motion for the next uh, <laughs> whatever that was. Not a wave, whatever that thing was that those sort of shot out of everybody as uh, Donnie Darko saw as he got closer to that time when. Um, it's been so long since I've seen that movie, but man, I, I mean, I remember really liking it yeah, when I, I first saw it. I liked it too, but I'll be honest, I loved, I was obsessed with Frank the Bunny, and I just, I would love to see him as an actual a horror character. I'd like to see more done with that, but not by Richard Kelly. That's just me. I know that's right. probably unpopular, but. Did you watch S. Darko? No, I heard it was terrible. Is it? I haven't seen it. But why would you want I, anyone I other than Richard Kelly to do it? That seems anti uh, 
intuitive. Well, because I'm anti Richard Kelly is why. Yeah, but he created. He's the one that created it. <laughs> well, wanted, I mean, he did a good job with Donnie Darko. I guess you're not a fan of the box. He, no, I'm not. I mean, even a stopped clock right. is right twice a day. So, I mean, you can get things right once in a while. But I, I, it's just all of his extra material. I mean, they've heard me rant about this before, but you have to have so much supplemental material to understand and appreciate a Richard Kelly movie. It bugs me. <laughs> I'm in the minority. I know, but I mean, I consider. No, oh, hey, I mean. It just I don't think that's necessarily true. I just think he adds a lot around the edges. I think you can still watch the films. I mean, there's so much going on with the Donnie Darko director's cut and book and all that stuff, but you can just watch the movie and enjoy it on its own terms. Yeah. Mostly I like agree. Donnie Darko you can, but like Southland Tales, you know, not horror, but still right. kind of horrifying. Yeah. But no, like anytime I've ever heard an interview with that guy... He always says something to the effect in every interview I've heard. He's like, well, you know, he's trying to explain himself. And he's like, As you see in this in this comic book over here, this kind of happened. And you kind of got to read that to understand. It's like, OK, well, you kind of got to freaking make a movie we can understand in its own terms. Like, Josh, when you made your great film, Clean Flicks. I he's underst- bigger than the movies, man. I understood Richard that. bigger than the movies. I know, but your film was <laughs> was a work contained within itself where one could enjoy it from beginning to end and understand it. And no, you don't always have to understand every aspect of the film, but if it's incomplete, it's incomplete. Well, I mean, it's just I just think you have to look at it maybe as a different medium. He's working like cross-media platforms. I don't know. He's not a, I guess he's not a filmmaker as much as he's just a multimedia storyteller. Yeah. I think he's brilliantly creative. I'll say that. I'll give I'll give Richard Kelly that. So if he's listening to this, I give you that. Well, at this point, let's move into our feature review of Spring from 2015. Look, man, you you need to change up your environment. You're the most attractive person I've ever seen. Go out with me tomorrow night. No. No. When you're no. Do you remember my name? You never told me. Scusa. You're learning. La donne sono del gelo del mondo. And you're not afraid to embarrass yourself. That's that's good. I'm Evan. Louise. I've been seeing this Italian girl. She's really pretty. So I only get to see you at night. There were nights together. Must remain a secret. She acts kind of weird sometimes, and I found something that gives me some doubts. It was funny that um, we were talking about people getting their right arms ripped off earlier on the show because I, I watched spring and I was so surprised by it. I immediately looked up the directors, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead to see what else they had done um, because I wasn't familiar with them. And they've done two other films that are kind of should have been on my radar. One is resolution and the other is uh, they, they did one of the segments of VHS viral and I watched both of those this week and in both of those films, people get their right arms ripped off, which is kind of an odd coincidence. <laughs> that is weird. That is uh, so, very weird. Yeah, it is. I, and I was expecting more of that in Spring. But um, Spring is a 2015 film directed by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. It stars Lou Pucci, who I'm a huge fan of from Thumbsucker, a, a kind of a dramedy indie film, not a horror in any way. But he's so good in that movie. Um, this also has a little appearance from Jeremy Gardner, 
<laughs> from <laughs> the battery. I love I was, him. I was really hoping he was going to be in the whole movie. I was so excited when I saw him. Same brother. Same. I'm unfortunately, he was not. Um, Very unfortunate. And then it also stars Nadia Hilker, who I'm unfamiliar with, uh, but she was she's a beauty and she was a solid actress throughout this film. Basically, this follows a young man played by you, Lou Pucci, who loses his parents, loses his job, and decides he's going to just take off and go on a trip to Italy. And when he's there, he meets a beautiful young woman and uh, kind of has an instant romance with her. This is hard to talk about to a horror-only audience. I think people who are you know cinephiles all around will recognize this as kind of derivative of a Richard Linklater film. It kind of feels like one of those before sunset, after sunset yes. films. <laughs> Um, and, it, and it was inspired by those, uh, actually, but they kind of wanted to add a horror element to a film like that. And if you think about it within the world of kind of indie film, you know, I think this fits comfortably in there as a film like that with horror elements. I think as a horror film, people might have more problems with it, but it's a rom- it's, it's, it's a romance as much as it is a horror film or maybe even more than it is a horror film. Yeah. I'm so grateful that you're saying this because I didn't want to fight with you on this and, and I thought it would be something we'd fight about. But yeah, to me, it's a drama first. It's a romance second. And then it's like a horror third to me. Yeah. Is that where, I mean, is that it, how you it, feel? It reminds me of um, a bit like the pyramid. <laughs> no. At, at the beginning, like it has the, like the beginning of that film. It kind of feels like that. Or no, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of uh, yeah, the pyramid, or um, as above, so below. It kind of has the vibe of like you're next or something like that. It's that kind of indie movie to me. It's not like I think when we talk about indie horror, people think about things like The Orphan Killer, but this is more like a <laughs> straight up independent film, like it would be at Sundance, but then with yeah. some horror elements in it. Yeah, and so. Some people are critical about like, um, and, and when I say some people, I'm referring to Bill Shetty. He, he gets on my case <laughs> all the time for, for saying horror elements. But honestly, you can't escape it in this film. I mean, you can't call these moments anything else other than horror. But I have a really difficult time classifying this as a horror film because, I mean, overall, just because of ultimately the tone is a love story. Yeah. I mean, you know, your favorite film critic on his website, I don't know who the critic was on his website, but from RogerEbert.com, there's a great little quote here on the poster that says a hybrid of Richard Linkletter and HP Lovecraft. And I think that's right on. Yeah, actually. Yeah, it is. Well said. Yes. So, but Josh, I will say this. I was, I I started watching this at midnight last night Mm -hmm. and the opening sequence, the opening sequence is rock and roll to me. As our friend Carl says, I was (laughs) with the mom. Yeah. I was scared to death. I think that opening scene (laughs) made me, well, well, that's the thing, but it made me, it makes me so uneasy. I think that's the scariest part of the film because Here's what happens. Because you think something scary is going to happen? It, it, yeah, yeah. So here it is. I'll explain where I'm coming from on this. You got As soon as the film begins, you got black screen. It's just black screen for a while. And then you hear strained breathing. So you know that somebody's having trouble. And then it basically opens in this, 
this lady is on her deathbed and it's um the protagonist Lou Pucci it's his his mother and she's dying and she's dying of cancer and it's apparent that that's what's happening to her and this scene is just is truly raw it's really un- unsettling yeah. this this did not happen with my mom or anything but I did have a similar experience in real life like with a family member who was just like just totally fading away to cancer and and in some ways it's a a special and intimate and tender thing and in other ways it's absolutely horrifying to watch death transpire like right in front of you and um and so i I honestly the the opening scene of this is the reason to watch this movie for me (laughs) and 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 even the second call it's almost like there are like two cold opens in this and the second one like afterwards after the funeral we're at a bar and, and the scene that happens there is also my cup of tea, except yeah. I wish that, that, you know, we get into a little bit of violence and I wish that that had been done a little better. I wish it had been like uh, edgier because I, I really feel like, but but knowing where this film goes or the, the tone it was going for, I understand now why it wasn't a little yeah. more severe. I will say the the scenes set in America seem like almost a totally different movie from the scenes that are set in Italy. Yes. Yes. And I, I liked both. I think I actually did prefer the Italian scenes just because it was so beautiful and and I like movies like that. Um I, I my biggest regret again is just that Jeremy Gardner wasn't in the whole movie. Um I think he yeah. would have added so much to have that friend with him on the trip. Oh man, yes. Um, yeah. how great would have that been, right? Yeah, I w- I would have I would have loved this film a whole lot more had he remained in it. Yeah, he needed. They needed something like that. Uh, they kind of have these Italian. Actually, I don't know what country they're from, but these two other um, traveler stand-ins at the beginning of the film, but they quickly depart, and it's mostly just a film about two people. And again, that's I think that's why it calls up Richard Linklater for so many people. I think it's a great romance film. I think it has a lot to say about um, taking a chance on life and love, and not. Um, not being so closed off or scared to kind of like uh, live life that you don't live it at all. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's what the movie's about. I think horror fans that are hardcore and not interested in other types of movies are going to probably hate this. Despise it. Or if you go in with expectations that you're just going in to watch a horror movie, again, you're going to be probably underwhelmed, but I think there's plenty to like here just as a, as a normal film, and I would agree with Jay, I think it's a relationship drama slash romance mixed with this, you know, light horror science fiction elements. Right. Yeah. I like the comparisons. And boy, we're a lot more peaceful in this review than I had feared we would be, Josh. And it's so refreshing. I thought we would fight a lot over this movie. And I'm so happy right now that we're getting along about a spring. <laughs> Well, we'll wait till we get to the the rating, the <laughs> okay. review ratings. That's true, but you know the, the things that you said about Richard Linklater and and so forth. I totally agree with that. the The films that came to mind for me this reminds me um, a little of the movie Charlie Countryman with Shia LaBeouf. I didn't see that one. Oh, that's actually a really uh, a good time. So you get that, and then it reminds me a little bit of that um, movie Afflicted, which is like a found footage. Or a flick mm-hmm. from, yep. and then we got a little touch of a killer mermaid in there, which we mentioned earlier in the show. <laughs> I mean, it reminds me of a few different things, and that's what's weird about it. 
having gone in blind, and it sounds like you went into it totally blind too, right? Yeah. Like not knowing anything what to expect, you don't really know what's coming around the corner. So I think that our review will affect people's experience with this film since they know it's going to be like a drama, romance, then horror. Yeah. And the horror moments, there are some kind of cool moments, Mm -hmm. but they are pretty CGI heavy, I think is my biggest complaint about them. Because they are startling and abrupt and kind of scary, but the, but because they're so CGI heavy, it kind of took me out, even of those moments. Um, and, and, uh, and and a couple of them were played for laughs, too, which I think sucks, because it could have been really scary. Right. Like some of the ones, like in the church toward the end, those yeah. are just played for pure comedy at that point. Yeah, but I just to make sure we're clear, like, I wouldn't call this movie in any way a comedy, right? No. But like the characters, I don't know. The approach to it is kind of whimsical, I guess. Okay, that's that's well said. I agree with that. In it's, some ways, it reminded me of Only Lovers Left Alive, like the <laughs> the horror the horror moments. You know, I think that movie I like. Again, that is another movie with um. You know, we'll review that eventually on the show. But it's it's primarily kind of this romance uh, critique on society with set within a horror genre. I think that one um, to me still feels more like a horror movie, but this one actually has more kind of kill moments in it. Yeah. Um, but they do feel kind of similar. Maybe it's just the European kind of setting and, and things like that. But. Well, and if this review sounds very bizarre to people like it, cause it almost sounds like we're kind of all over the place, but I think the film is a little bit all over the place tonally. Like, um, I mean, well, maybe not tonally. It has a, a, a pretty consistent tone, but it's almost like they want to incorporate a lot of different elements. Well, I think just like with that first scene, I guess I just kept expecting it to go way darker. Yeah. And the film has a lot of mystery and it's shot in a way that you kind of can't see around the corner for much of the film. Yeah. And there, and there are characters in it that seem to have kind of these mysterious roles, like the old, this old man that, Lou Pucci uh, lives with and works for on a farm in Italy. He seems like his role is going to be more sinister or more important, I guess, to the narrative. Yeah, for me. Um, and the same thing with the with the girl. I just kept expecting all hell to break loose at some point, and it never really does. You know, it kind of maintains the tone that it starts out with. So, in fact, I love it that you said that. So, the old man. I'm going to be so careful about this. Don't worry. In the village, do you remember William Hurt's character in the village? Yeah. And do you remember how at one point there's a revelation having to do with a barn in the village? Yes, yeah. I thought there was going to be a a parallel type of scene involving this old man (laughs) like (laughs) like that. I could totally see that. Yeah, I felt uneasy about him too a little bit. Like I I really felt like a a revelation was coming there. And I at least thought his wife was going to have a more... Mm-hmm. straightforward tie to the main story. But. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. See, I, that's, and I love, you said something there that was absolutely brilliant when you said it's really hard to see around the corner on this movie. And that is, that is right on the money. That's one of the best like lines I've ever heard in a movie review. Cause it is like that. You don't really know quite what's coming, but I will say the Lou Pucci character, the lead guy who plays Evan, he is so, likable yeah like i i mean how often in a horror film do you really get characters that you're like man again yeah, you this just not, do not want anything bad to happen to this kid 
<laughs> yeah, like he he's truly like a this sounds so Pollyanna or something, but he you can tell he's kind of a special guy. It's like I like this guy. <laughs> you know, that that opening scene with his mother is really pretty poignant and amazing yeah. and I'm with him from then on. He's lost so much when the movie's starting that you, you're so invested in his happiness, kind of. But at the same time, he has all the earmarks of someone who should disappear in a horror movie because he doesn't have family or friends to kind of like yes, to miss him, you know? And so, I, again, I just am expecting the absolute worst right. in, from this film. And but you don't, it doesn't ever really quite get there. Yeah, and for people right now who are listening to this, for the hardcore fan, horror fans out there who are like, why are you guys talking about this freaking movie on Horror Movie Podcast? Well, I mean, that that's what Josh said is part of it. Like, he does seem like a horror character because, you know, horror happens to those who deserve it least. And this guy is going through all kind of tragedy and hardship. So it's even constructed like a horror film. And also people are already talking about this as like one of the best horror films of the year. Mm. Like it's getting that kind of buzz that like the Babadook was getting this and it follows, which we'll be talking about in the next episode. Yes. Have that like indie credibility coming in. And this film screened at Toronto um, and it follows screened at Sundance and they've got all of this love coming out of the film festival circuit. But again, that's like, those are mainstream critics praising this as a great horror film. What that usually means is the horror elements aren't quite as hardcore as horror fans are usually used to yeah. or expecting. So, yeah. And, and this is not disparaging at all about the, the genre we love, but I mean this, I think this is a thoughtful type of film sometimes in yeah. horror. Let's just all admit here for a minute. Sometimes it can be mindless, you know, gutter ball. <laughs> for example it's mindless <laughs> think about i mean i wish that the hardcore horror films would just take a small note out of the you know the page of this of this movie's book in terms of character development yes because you care so much it would be devastating if this movie went crazy and i just and i wish that some of my favorite horror films that have the gore have the really scary scares would take as much time to develop a character and characters as interesting as interesting as the people in this movie. Oh yeah, because this, yeah, a film like this, it could dismantle your life, like it could yeah. just destroy you, <laughs> like because it gets you by the, you know, what I'm talking about. So, yeah, uh, I've been following your lead on something on this, Josh, and I, I, I'm interested in the fact that you've been very careful about the monstrous elements. And I noticed you haven't said anything about that. And so I assume that we're not. Well, I don't, I don't want to spoil it if people do do go to see it because there are so few horror elements. I mean, I think I, I purposely chose um, to talk about Rabbit this week because I think there are some elements similar to um, a woman <laughs> who kind of has. And honestly, when I, you know, we talked about Under the Skin as well um, mm-hmm. on on movie streamcast this week, it also has this kind of man killer character at the cent- at the center of the film. Yes, um, but of of the three of those films, this one is maybe the least malevolent. Yeah, man killer. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, and so 
but just to be clear though, so so you're not gonna say what type of because because well, I is, I think also like rabbit, this is not a clear monster. This is not a monster. I mean, it is. I guess. I mean, I guess we could say that this is in some ways a monster movie. Um, but yeah. I think like rabbit, it's not a clear monster that fits into some kind of category. We're aware of. I think there are some kind of science fiction elements in the sense that. Um, the monster in this movie is attempted to be explained through biological kind of evolutionary mm-hmm. um, scientific means. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's it. That's um, well put. I'm with you on it. I just want to point out here, I'm the same way that you are about CGI. I'm pretty critical of it. If it's not really convincing, I prefer practical effects. But in this film, I think some of the, the transformation type scenes and things. We get some scenes where we see transition and so forth. I think they're pretty well done for me, at least. I don't know. I mean, I like, I think there are some body horror moments that are really well done, but I think like in an alleyway there, there's a shot that's kind of um, anytime it's a full CGI creature, I'm not really buying it. Whenever there's kind of practical elements mixed into it with, with the actress, I can, I can live with that, but right. Well, that alley scene. I'm glad I was going to talk about that too. the The alleyway scene where you do get a full shot. It was such unusual imagery, like that. It really creeped me out. Actually, even mm. though even though there is definitely an obvious artificiality to it. Now, wait. Are you talking about the one with the cats or the one with the tourists? Uh, uh, well, I'm talking about the cats. Okay, yeah, that one is creepy and artificial. Yeah. In a good way. Yes. The other one is artificial to me in like a Van Helsing, I Frankenstein kind of way. Okay. Well, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Yeah. So not perfect, but I mean, it wasn't too bad. I mean, I, I thought it was permissible with the effects, but. Yeah. I would have just, why not just put some makeup on the actress? Would have been way cooler in my opinion. I mean, I think obviously at the end. But you know what? We've just come off of these Friday the 13th movies back in 1980. <laughs> They're putting Kevin Bacon underneath of a bed and putting all this, you know, and things are coming through his throat. You could have done this movie with practicals and I would have liked it better. Maybe not on the budget. They probably were on a pretty tight budget for this film. But um, yeah, but even so, I mean, the photography looked great. I mean, I, their location budget must have been pretty good. Yeah. But what an awesome place to go film. And there's some really long takes. Did you notice how long some of those tracking walk and talk scenes were? Like yeah. In the, some of those were like, whoa. I just, it's it's like, you. it's one of those things where you're not noticing it at first because it's just happening. And then you realize, I think this shot's been going on for like two or three minutes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I will say that too. I mean, the artistry in this film is very impressive. Like, for example, and this is something that probably hardly anybody would admire or appreciate, but boy, I loved it. There's a scene where our hero is riding in a car. It's toward the beginning of the movie. And he's riding with these ne'er-do-wells <laughs> who are kind of goofballs. And they're listening to this like hardcore rap music, which is fine. But on the soundtrack, they do something absolutely genius to me. He's just had the death of his mother, and he's trying to kind of have this time away and this escape. So he's trying to have fun. He's been drinking with these guys, and they're listening to rap music. Well, on the soundtrack, they also put in this underlying sad music. And yeah. auditorially, like the, the soundtrack there depicts what is happening on screen. It's like... 
yeah, on the surface, they, they might be having fun in this raucous time, but actually, this guy is suffering inside, and that was mm-hmm. tremendous. I mean, I was so impressed with that. Yeah, I think these guys are interesting directors to to uh, keep an eye on. Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. I think um, I you know I also did see their film Resolution. Like I said this week, in um, VHS Viral, they're the guys that directed the film with the the little short with the skateboarders. If you guys remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, they're interesting filmmakers and I think they're, you know, resolution is a super meta. I mean, I hate to compare it to something like cabin in the woods because tonally and production value wise, it couldn't be further away from it. But in terms of the way it plays with the audience and plays with our expectations of a horror film and, and also all the tropes and conventions of a horror film, it's kind of next level. It's doing something I've never seen done before in a horror movie. Yeah. Again, having said that, most horror fans would not like that movie. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and I think that's also probably the case with Spring. I think um Yeah. I think people have to be a fan of all cinema to appreciate Spring. And I think people who are going in just for a horror film are going to be really disappointed. I agree 100%. And, and in fact, I would say for those people, the latter that you spoke of, that they probably shouldn't even give this a try because they're not going to be pleased. I can guarantee it. Because this thing is, it's artistically done. It, it has some like emotional weight to it. It's really trying to accomplish something more than just scares. And, you know, as as just general cinephiles, I think we can love and appreciate that. Right, Josh? Yeah, I can totally appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if this was if this was movie podcast weekly, I wouldn't even be saying most of this stuff. Same. The truth. Yes. But because of the context we're in, I feel like I want to warn people. And that's why I kind of was being so vague about the movie. And hopefully that wasn't frustrating, but just like. I'm not going to end up recommending this movie to this group of people. So <laughs> I wasn't going to get that deep into it. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. And and one other little thing before we move into our ratings, I was just going to say that this movie could very easily be read just metaphorically. I mean, you could take this and just run with it on a metaphorical mm-hmm. level. Cause like all, all day today I thought about it and I was thinking, yeah, I mean, there are themes in there. I mean, you can look at it like kind of like the what we did with the Babadook. You can look at it as a literal monster or a metaphorical monster. And I think you mm-hmm. could do that here as well. Yeah. yeah okay. So let's wrap up with our final thoughts and ratings. I bet you'll rate it higher than I will. So I better go first because <laughs> I, <laughs> okay. I don't want you mad at me. Um, right. So, yeah, this is very impressive. And I intentionally did not mention another film that is much berated that this reminds me of because I didn't want people to associate it that way because this is way better than that much berated film. But it's also <laughs> a love story involving monsters, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> okay. But this is a drama to me first, romance, and then a horror film. And and when we say horror, with horror elements, it has horror imagery, there is a monster of sorts. Yes. So there's that. But, you know, I do admire it as a film lover. I think it's it's pretty well done, actually. But I just can't recommend it as a horror movie. But just generally speaking, because I don't really separate like that, Josh. You know how they give you grief for that sometimes. 
I'm just going to stick to one rating and it's a 5.5 for me. And if you love, if you love the cinema, I'd call it a, a rental. I think it's worth checking out, but for the hardcore fans out there, not for you. What do you say, Josh? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I went into this movie totally blind, just knowing that it was very critically acclaimed um, and kind of being touted as a must-see horror film of 2015. So I was expecting a lot. And like you said, it starts out really dark. And like I said, you can't see around the corner. And so I thought, am I getting into like a hostile type of movie? I think I felt like that several times during the film. Yeah. Um, there, I, I just really did not know what to expect. And so I think maybe my imagination created a little more on the horrific end of the spectrum. <laughs> than mm-hmm. this film ultimately delivers. I really like what it delivered, frankly. Um, again, maybe not for this specific audience. And I don't say that disparagingly at all. I just think people who are coming for a straight-up horror film are not going to get that. So I think if people understand that, um, which I'm sure we've said it more than enough at this point, I think this is a 7.5. I think it's a strong rental recommendation. I think hardcore horror fans should not bother with the film okay nice and that is our feature review for spring from 2015 our good buddy here the mad doctor he wants to talk to us about a very interesting film called psychomania yes yes this is something that i watched a a few days ago um i had heard about it before it's 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 from the 70s uh, it's a British movie, and the basic premise, just to sort of categorize it, is it's about undead bikers. So you got two sort of exploitation genres going here. Well, you got horror, and I'm not going to call them zombies. They're not zombies, but um, you you have horror, and then you have the like uh, the bikers. You know, the 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 sort of wild angels um, slash easy rider uh, bikers. It's a biker gang. Um, and it, it was just really just out there. I mean, this was a, this was a very bizarre movie, but in a, in, in a, in an interesting way, um, you know, just to, uh, to set it up, it's, uh, again, made in 1973, uh, it's directed by a guy named Don Sharp. Um, and it's about, uh, the leader of a bike game, a biker gang, his name is Tom, and uh, his group is called the Living Dead. That's the name of his gang, the Living Dead. Uh, and that's cool. What happens? <laughs> yeah, that, that was from that point right there. And they're like a regular gang. They raise hell in all sorts of ways. But there's a little bit more to this. Something a little stranger with this is that Tom's comes from a very well-off family. His mother is a medium. Well, first time we meet her, there's a family gathered around and she's talking with a child's voice. Um, you know, it's like a couple and then an older couple. It's like a mother, father, grandmother, grandfather. She's talking with a child's voice. She's channeling their a dead child and is talking directly to them. And you're sort of thinking, OK, well, is this a scam? You know, what's going on? But then you find out later on that it's not because she accepts no money for doing this. She's doing this as a service. Uh, for these people, they even tried to leave a gift. And it's funny because it's a crucifix that's been in their family and the butler refuses it. He won't even touch it. And he throws them out when they even show him the cross. 
What's really interesting is this butler is played by George Sanders. Uh, It was interesting to see an actor of that stature in a movie like this. As a matter of fact, it was George Sanders' final movie. He died before this was – he committed suicide before this movie was released. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so so this is his last performance. Uh, But anyway, we find out um, just from from them talking that that Tom has has stumbled on something that that both the butler – um, Shadwell is his name, and his mother have found a way. They basically licked death. They've beaten it. They've found a way to live forever. And he wants that secret. Well, there's a bizarre scene where they say, "Okay, well here you go." They they let him go into the room where his father committed suicide 18 years ago, and he has all these strange images. And he comes out and he finds out basically here's the secret. Here's how you can live forever. One, kill yourself. But also have absolute confidence that you will return. That's the key right there. You have to believe you will return. Supposedly his father had some doubts at the very last second, hesitated a little before he killed himself, which means he's now in the grave forever. So if you kill yourself, if you just go you know, full barrel forward and say, I'm killing myself and I know I'm going to come back, you're going to come back. It's, it's as easy as that. I mean, who who'd have known? You know, I think people would be doing this left <laughs> and right by the thousands every day. But anyway, right. So the next day they go into they're again, raising hell like with the gang like they normally do. You know, and he had had talks with his girlfriend saying, hey, how about the two of us kill ourselves and and, and whatnot? And she's not too into it. And you're like, yeah, OK, whatever. <laughs> she's not too into um, it. No, no, she's not. She's not. She's not. She's not I, don't, I don't think so. I, I promised my mother I'd go shopping with her tomorrow. She actually says that. So that's her reason of getting out of killing herself for that day mm-hmm. anyway yeah um but they, they do they go into town and, and again this is a this is a biker flick you know this is this is as much a biker flick as anything else because when they go into town um i mean they go in there they're they're uh the one of the first things they do is they they cause a motorist to, to crash and he he's dead he goes through the windshield um uh, but they also go into town they they chase mothers who are pushing baby carriages um, they knock a, a, a guy off of a ladder while he's up painting. They're chased by the police. But during the police chase is when Tom decides he's going to cash in his chips and he drives right off a bridge. Okay. So then we get um, a rather bizarre scene where the mother um, allows the gang to bury Tom. They go to a place called the, the, the Seven Witches, I think is what it is, all these stones there. Uh, and they're going to bury him there, but they're burying him, burying him sitting up on his bike. Okay, so he's on his bike, he's sitting up, and they're throwing dirt on him. Uh, but I and what's really strange is there's a guy singing a a song there, and I, I wish I had a clip of this song. This is like probably the the least fitting song for a movie like this. Um, well, it was called Riding Free, mm-hmm. and <laughs> it's almost like like a Donovan or a Peter Paul and Mary type of song. Okay, okay. that this guy is sitting there strumming and playing uh, d- during this funeral, really just out of left field. But anyway, they bury him, and then the next day they get reports that there's a guy who claiming to be Tom went into town. Five people were killed. And, you know, we, we go along for this and we see that it is Tom. He comes back from the dead. A really interesting scene of a, a motorist broke down. He's walking through the seven witches and he hears a bike start up. And you see him just pop out of the ground on his bike and just mow this guy down. Um, really pretty cool scene. Uh, but anyway, he's back. Uh, he proves he's back. And, and they're not really sure who he is. At first, they think it's somebody posing as Tom. So one of the, one of the gang sneaks up behind this guy and stabs him with a knife. 
And Tom turns around and goes, oh, by the way, another really good thing. You've died once. You can't die again. Hmm. So he's not even injured by this knife. So now the rest of the movie, the rest of the gang goes about killing themselves in order to become the living dead, to, to become the actual living dead. And um, they don't just shoot themselves or do so. They come up with some pretty interesting ways. <laughs> to, I think the, probably my favorite is a guy who jumps from uh, – up, go skydiving and decides not to open his parachute. Oh, that's the way Josh <laughs> wants to go. Yeah. Right. Yep, that, exactly. And then it's funny because everyone, you know, they, they throw it up on the line. They clip it up on the line. He walks up, jumps out, shows the guy he's not clipping it and just jumps out of the plane. Hmm. Um, but anyway, I don't I won't go into too much more than that. But um, it's Tom's idea because they also get great strength and they can't be killed. His idea is he's going to really – take over the town, you know, he's going to, and, and the mother decides he's got to be stopped. Um, and then the whole thing is, well, how is she going to stop him? Hmm. You know? Um, and then you learn a little bit more about the characters of uh, even George Sanders character and whatnot. It's, I'll tell you what, it was a fun, really fun movie. And it is out there. I mean, it really is, but it, it, it was never, it was never dull. I really, uh, I just had a lot of fun with I had a lot of fun with with the movie. I mean it just and 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 with the the, the different genres mixing, you know, the biker and um I, I again I can't say zombie because they're not zombies. They're fully alert. You know, they they they're themselves. They they're back from the dead and they're themselves. They're just stronger and they can't be killed. Hmm. Um and and again with with the sort of uh, the one song in there riding free that that's Literally, it's something that uh, not even Easy Rider, not even the music in Easy Rider was this flower child like, you wow. know? Yeah, that's saying um, something, too. Yeah, but <laughs> I'd probably give it a solid seven and a half. Okay. And say it's it's worth renting. It's it's worth checking out. It's unusual. I'm definitely thinking of uh, amending my cinematic oddities to possibly make room for um, Psychomania. Yeah, and I see here that's from 1973-ish, and it's also known as The Death Wheelers. The Death Wheelers, yes. And I believe that's how it was released in, in, in England, if I'm not mistaken. I think Psychomania might have been the U.S. title for yeah. that. or the other. I can't remember if it's the other way around. I'm pretty sure that it was released as The Death Wheelers in, in the U.K. Part of me thinks it should have been Psychomania, right? Yeah, Cause they I ride can see that, yeah. But no, I'm just kidding. I also <laughs> see that this is rated. This is rated PG. Is that right? It's rated PG. Yeah. Now there's no nudity in this. Um. The, or or is there? This is I'm before the PG-13 rating. So yeah, this, they had yes, to kind of make a they, judgment call between R and so it PG. Could, it could still be pushing it for PG. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I see. Oh, and there's, and there's a very. I won't. I won't go into too much of it. But there's a very funny scene set in a um. In, in a morgue when they're preparing to do autopsies um, where you just hear this. One of the guys hears a knock as if someone trying to get his attention and he has no idea where it's coming from at first. It's just, it's actually a pretty funny scene. So doc says that psychomania or the death wheelers is a 7.5 out of 10. He says, rent it. It's an oddity. Cool. And at this point in episode 49 of Horror Movie Podcast, we got a couple voicemails to listen to. And here's one from Michael that I really appreciate. Hi, my name is Michael. I'm from uh, Cape Coral, Florida. 
I just wanted to let you guys know you guys are a great podcast. I've been listening to you guys for a couple of days now, and uh, I'm, I'm a big fan, guys. I just wanted to give you guys a, an A-plus a for, uh, for being such good content, and uh, just uh, keep doing what you guys are doing, and review all the horror movies that you guys can to let us horror movie fans, you know, pick the great movies and the bad movies, and I, I trust you guys' judgment. So uh, you guys have a wonderful day, night, or whatever time it is, because actually I'm listen- I listen to you guys when I, while I work as a security guard. So, uh, yeah, just uh, you just know that you guys have one, one extra fan, and uh, just keep doing what you guys are doing, all right? Bye. That's awesome. From Michael. Yes, thank you. That's great. Yeah, what flattered me most is um, film critics have no power whatsoever anymore. Like, like seriously, like it doesn't matter if like Iron Man comes out and you give it a bad review. Like, people are gonna see it. People don't care what film critics have to say. So when Michael says something like he trusts our judgment, that means a lot to me. I take that very seriously, and it makes me even want to fret even more over my ratings because you know how Josh, you and I, I know we we're always like, well. I'm not certain that it should be at this number. (laughs) Right? But anyway. It's interesting you say that, Jay, because I saw we had a a recent comment on uh, iTunes. And I I can't remember. I don't have any of the information in front of me here. But one of the funniest things was the the person left the comment was, was really praising the show, you know, left and right. It had a lot of very glowing things to say about us. And at the very end, he says, so I'll be like Jay, and I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10. <laughs> you know? Oh, that's funny. That's funny. That's actually, I mean, that's a rental to me. So, heck yeah. yeah. <laughs> People don't you're get that. You're getting it free. So, yeah. That's a, well, when, right. I, when I say a thing is a 6, people are always on my case. They're like, a 6? But, I mean, a 6 is good. It doesn't mean 60% in my book. Like, because in school, that'd be what? A D or an F, right? But, no, a 6 is a good rental. That's something that you'll probably talk about the next day at work, you know? So, anyways, but yeah, everybody misunderstands me on this. Okay, here's one. I don't think it's that they misunderstand you. It's that you will beam about these movies and how wonderful they are, and then you'll throw in a 6 out of 10. Yeah, I, I think that's probably more that than anything else. You know, you'll, <laughs> so this is probably the greatest movie I've seen this week. I'm gonna give it a five. That's you right. know, I think that's probably what 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 throws people for a loop. Well, the problem is I see a lot of crappy movies, so a five could be the greatest movie I saw that week. <laughs> All right, here's one that I really like, and I just have to see what you guys say about it. Hello, Jay of the Dead and horror movie podcasters. This is Scott Waller in Central Arkansas. I've been listening to you for about two years now, and I'm calling about Oculus. Yesterday, we had a snow day, and I was stuck inside, and I finally got around to watching it. And afterwards, I went back and listened to your episode about it, and the only thing I took away from it was Jay the Dead's interest in when the little kids are watching cartoons. You mentioned it in the Babadook episode as well. (laughs) <laughs> and um, the only thing I really noticed about this was the little brother in the middle of the movie. He's laying on the sofa kind of like forlorn and his face is all sad. And there's like a cartoon on this right after the dog dies. And what I got out of it is that is an activity from before the mirror arrived when life was good. When his parents were trying to kill him, 
when you know he and his sister were able to run around and shoot each other. And watching cartoons is something that the rest of the world who didn't have a, a cursed mirror in their house, that's what they were doing. And he, he knew his life would never go back to before the mirror came into the house. So that was the only kind of moving and interesting part about Oculus that I took away from it. So I guess it falls into Jay's definition of horror being, you know, that took away the peace of the house. Nice. So um, thanks a lot. And I really enjoy y'all's show. And I listen to it all the time. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. It's great Thank to you. finally, you know, start associating a voice with the people whose comments we've been reading. That's really cool. So, yes, absolutely. I also liked hearing that one, you know, voicemail from someone who has been listening from a, for a couple of days, followed by someone who's been listening for a couple of years. That was a nice uh, yeah. juxtaposition yeah. there. Mm-hmm. That is nice. Yeah. So, have you guys, just real quick, have you guys seen Oculus yet? I forget. I have not, no. No, I'm not going to see that. <laughs> That's really <laughs> funny, because I, I mean, I didn't think it was terrible. It's actually pretty decent, especially since we're talking about an evil killer mirror, which, like, how scary can that be? But it's pretty well done. But I, I remember I reviewed that with a couple of buddies. It's like One Sick Puppy and Levi the Unknown Murderer, I believe. And that was on episode, was that 14? That was back in the day. And that's like an eight hour episode. If you want to brave that for people who haven't heard that episode, we didn't, what did we do on that show? (laughs) It was just insane. We just had several recording sessions over the two week period. And we covered lots of stuff in that particular episode. It was kind of crazy. But, Holy cow! I don't. I'm. I do remember an eight-hour episode. I didn't realize it was that late in in the rotation, though. I didn't know it was it was number fourteen. I mean, I know the first episode was very long. Yeah, yeah. This you know, was, to sort of get to know you, but uh, number fourteen <laughs> was eight hours long. It was. That I'm was starting <laughs> to remember why I skipped these Frankenstein episodes. <laughs> yeah, that, that was back in April 2014. We had Bill Shetty on that show. We did the The Hills Have Eyes, the remakes, the newer versions, and we did okay. Jan Gal in that episode. Like six oh, hours boy. of reading listener emails yeah that's probably that's what it was that was when we that was when we were still trying to trying to get our bearings as to the best way to handle the 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 feedback okay yeah yes and i I remember like was it halfway through josh is just like we've got to figure out a better way to do this or something along those lines i know yeah so anyway that was when we reviewed oculus and i want to thank scott for putting some thought into that whole um cartoons and horror films thing I'm starting to write blogs for the site and I'm starting to write like, I don't want to call them theoretical, but I'm trying to explore some themes in horror. And that is one that I'm going to tackle further is uh, cartoons and horror films. Uh, That's something I need to really do some more research on. But yeah, I mean, if anybody has any thoughts on that, please, you know, send them our way. And thanks for your voicemail, Scott. Okay, and here's one that comes from Adam. And he's asking for some recommendations or some picks. So if you guys want some picks, get out your pens and papers or your computer or whatever you take notes with and uh, check it out. Here we go. Hey, guys. My name is Adam. I live in New Mexico. I started getting into horror movies late last year. Not even late last year, probably the middle of last year. Uh, I find myself watching majority of horror is nothing but slashers. 
I was just wondering if you guys could recommend me any must-see slashers from either the 1980s or even more recently. Keep up the good work, and thanks for everything you guys are doing. Take care. Bye. Okay, Adam. Oh, you come to the right place. I love slashers. I know, Doc, you love them. And yep. Josh, your all-time favorite horror movie is um, Halloween. That's a slasher. So slashers are my favorite horror yeah. subgenre. Yeah, it's, and it's it's interesting. We've just done the Friday the Thirteenth, but yet I think we we could still be ready to sit here now and still talk about some different slasher movies to recommend. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, I mean, here here's what I'm thinking. So Adam, he says he mostly watches slashers. So I'm sure that he's seen. You know, all the, the must-see classics, which everybody knows about. So, we needn't go into those. But then there's, like, the second-tier classics from the 80s. So, first tier, obviously, Halloween, right? Friday the 13th, mm-hmm. etc. And then, second tier, right, we have, like, The Prowler. That's a must-see. Maniac, The Burning, My Bloody Valentine. I don't know if I like you referring to those as... Second tier, I think uh, the Prowl yeah. is one of the best all-time slashers. Uh, I would, I agree. I would agree with you, Josh. I, that's that's high up on my list as well. Well, I want to clarify here. So, if if somebody said, okay, think of the first, name the first ten horror films off the top of your head, you know, that that's what I mean by first tier. I agree. Yeah. I think the Prowler is like that may very well be one of the best, but I say second tier because it is kind of lesser known. And it's a little bit more obscure. I mean, hardcore horror fans know it, but you'd be surprised how many people I encounter that have not seen The Prowler. So if you haven't, that's a that's a must see. And like Maniac, same thing, The Burning, etc. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then m- moving on from there, assuming he's seen those, which he probably has. What do you guys say? Let's throw out some stuff. Well, I, I think one thing we should, um, uh, and you could probably say which episode this was. Uh, but I think that uh, as far as a modern take on it, uh, you can't do much better than, than the two cold prey movies, oh, you know, yeah. one and two. I, I think those are definitely worth checking out as a modern take on, uh, on slashers. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And we, um, we promised to cover those for like so many times. Times in a row. I'm trying to. Right. Find, I'm right. trying to go back and find them here. I'm guessing we must have hit on it in the eight-hour episode, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like fruit vit is the the original language that it's in. I'm, I'm trying to. I'll use Google to find it here, but but keep on going. I agree with you on the cold prey picks. Okay. Very fun. I don't know. Maybe on the same level as not as film, but on kind of what you're referring to as your tears. Maniac Cop is a. This is a fun one to check out. Mm-hmm. What's the other one? Uh, the New York, what is that one called? Um, New York Ripper? Yeah, New York Ripper. Yes. How about this? Well, he said 80s. I'm sorry, this is like 1979, but just in case you haven't seen Taurus Trap, I think that's worth oh, your time. Oh, definitely. Yep, and, absolutely. And that's got some creepy mannequins involved in it. Like, like not, not. let's see. Yeah, you call those mannequins, Doc? Yeah. Like yes, dolls, yeah. yeah, almost like. But I, I know what you're saying because they're all they're, they're almost an, they're animated. It's like they're, they're almost like mm, <laughs> like like a wind up type of thing, you know. Um, yeah, those are but pretty- they're life size. Really, the reason to see that though is, is Chuck Connors uh, gives gives a really good performance of that. And there's one scene in particular where he's got this person on a table. 
Yes. And he's just so sort of. Pretty. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. So, it's. I say that to my daughter because of that scene. I always. I say, so pretty. <laughs> okay, well, I'm, I'm, well we're going to leave that one alone for right creepy. now. But, yeah, right. Well, I know. It's funny. That's why I do it. Just to kind of, you know, mess with her. Who wouldn't want to mess with their child by constantly quoting a horror movie? <laughs> That's how we do over here. If you want to talk about something on the level of The Prowler, then definitely Pieces from 1982. That is mm-hmm. a, an absolute must. Right. One, one that also that gets all overlooked, too, is um, the, the first Sleepaway Camp. Yes. Um, you know, that that's, it's not – that would – one I would say would be a, a, like a true sort of second tier. Um, that's, that's a be definite B or C level movie, but it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's like yeah. borderlines like – Tromaville, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's 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 close to that. I just can't. The thing I always get, I, I can't get over is the um, is the character who is a who is a blatant child molester yeah. in that film. Yeah, uh, who works at the, works at the camp. Um, and I won't get into the I won't get into the direct reference, but at one point he's like, I call them baldies. And you're watching this movie, you're like, oh my god! Yikes! <laughs> you know, that's how far they took that character, you yeah. know? It it really was very eighties and very disturbing, you know, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I've t- got two recommendations here. The films that I love that I'd like to cover sometime on the show, but um, if you like giallos, and if you're a slasher fan and you haven't gotten into giallos, I think you need to you need to give it a shot because there's some amazing. Right. One's out there here, but there's a 1987 film. It's an Italian film. It's called Stage Fright. Um, it is similar in some ways to the new Stage Fright, although it's not a musical. Um, but this 1987 Stage Fright, it's also sometimes called Deliria or Aquarius or something, or Stage Fright Aquarius or something like that. Right, right. Nice. But um, anyway, if you track this movie down, it's really awesome. It's it's one of those giallos that rides the line right there between giallo and slasher. And it's a lot of fun and it's strange and it has even though it's a 1987 film it kind of has that 70s Italian vibe to it that I I really like a lot. Mm-hmm. And another one kind of on that level is actually it's a TV. It was made for TV. Um, but it's written and directed by John Carpenter the same year oh. that he made Halloween, and it's called Someone's Watching Me. Yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely a, worth checking it's out. It's a really fun movie, and it yes. ha- it's it's got a mystery to it, and it seems to me that it must have been a major influence on Scream. It has the whole telephone call thing that, of course, you know we've seen in other movies before this as right. well, but if this seems directly like a direct influence on Scream to me. Mm-hmm. Neat. Yeah, I'd definitely behind you on that one. That's it's even though being you know made for TV, it's you could get away with more on TV in the seventies. It looked like, uh, yeah, I, I, I absolutely that that one was excellent. Yeah, it was great. Nice, Josh is bringing it. Yeah, I, another one, and uh, this one led to a series too. And I don't know that I recommend the series. Uh, even the first film is along the lines of Sleepaway Camp, and that would be Slumber Party Massacre. The uh, Roger yes. Corman produced movies that was the second movie in that series is just uh, <laughs> all basically a comedy. It's almost like a straight up comedy. Um, I always thank you when I see that when those rare gas station stops, like when I see that movie and they have that, 
I always think mm-hmm. of you because I know that's one of your guilty pleasures. It is like a B, B or C grade movie, yeah. though, as well. Yeah, yeah, I would, uh, I would agree with that. But I would definitely agree with that. But real quick, back to Pieces, which is a film from Spain. It's actually a Spanish film from 1982 that has some of the the best, most upsetting slasher kills in it. To me, it's it's. On the order of um, the Prowler, not maybe not quite as convincing, but there's a waterbed scene that you'll never forget. Um, what about in the late? Yeah, 80s? and that's also kind of like a Giallo style. Yeah, it's tremendous. In the late '80s, um, there's one from 1989 called Intruder, which I totally love. That's the grocery store slasher yeah, movie. Good. Oh yeah, that's excellent. That is excellent. <laughs> that is a. That is a blast. That's the, you know, that's the movie that, um, you know, if it's Friday night and I don't have any homework to do for a podcast, like, you know, homework watching and I want to watch a horror flick, that's the first one I always think about. It's like, man, hmm. I like to watch Intruder right now because that's that's hmm. Prowler for me. Um, Jay, you haven't mentioned your two favorite. I'm surprised. Well, I got a list here, but you okay. just throw them out if you want to. Well, they're not my favorites. I'm just surprised they weren't. You hadn't mentioned them yet. <laughs> Well, go ahead. Uh, say Alice, it. Sweet Alice, and Toolbox Murders. Yep, yep. They're both on the list. I, I just I talk about Alice, Sweet Alice so much. I worry that people will hate me, but I was still going to mention it anyway. But but everybody, <laughs> Wolfman brought it up first, so now I'm allowed to talk about it. Yes, 1976, Alice, Sweet Alice. That's one of my all time favorite slasher flicks. Do you guys love that one like I do? Oh yeah, I mean, it's been a while since I've seen it. It's good, yeah, definitely. I enjoy it. Okay. Not as good as the ones I've recommended tonight, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is a must-see. And then the toolbox murders, the first like what, 15 minutes of that, and I'm talking I'm not talking about the 2003 one. Okay, just so everybody knows. That one's just called Toolbox Murders. Okay. Okay, now I'm talking about the one from 1978. The first 15 minutes of that is a masterpiece. And then it turns into a drama. It's really weird. It starts out as one of the greatest slashers ever made for like 15 minutes. It's amazing. To me, this, that is a, that is like the definition of a sick movie to me though. I think it's, um, (laughs) it's, it's, it's weird because it's super lo-fi, but it's so sadistic. Like it's a, I would not say that it's like a fun slasher to me compared Mm -hmm. to some of the others we've talked about. Well, it's pretty hardcore, but the thing is about that, I, when you say that, I'm always astounded that you feel that way. I mean, when's the last time you watched it? Um, when we reviewed it on <laughs> something recent. I mean, it was okay. either on Horror Metropolis or Land of the Creeps. I reviewed it. Yeah, okay. Okay. Well, fair enough. I got you. But yeah, I just want to kind of tell people the Toby Hooper one from 2004, Toolbox Murders, has Angela Bettis in it. Man, that should have been so much better. Please don't get them mixed up. 1978 mm-hmm. is the one you want. And then and then of course since we're mentioning things that I can't help but not mention, I mention it every show basically. French film, it's called Inside from 2007. Mm-hmm. Absolutely another fr- brutal. Another yeah, another French film Frontiers. Oh yeah. I think it's worth checking out. And actually 1983's one that doesn't get a lot of respect as or as much as it probably deserves is The House on Sorority Row from 1983. Mm. Okay. <laughs> you're, not, you're not a big fan of that, I like that movie. Do you remember yes. we, we like 
didn't we fight over that um for like two hours on yeah we might have and there was another one we fought of no was it the house on sorority where we fought over or was it that other one there was another one called the dorm that dripped blood yeah that one too yeah. that well maybe it was both of them yeah maybe we it was both of we them. fought on both of them. the house on sorority rose okay but yeah the dorm to drip blood Oh boy! I know you didn't care for that one. I enjoyed the Dorm the Trip Blood, but okay, yeah. we're not gonna we're not gonna get into that again. <laughs> real real quick, a more modern one too. This is from 2002. I'm just gonna throw this one out there. Lower budget movie. Um, I thought it had some some um, some interesting elements to it. Definitely worth a watch. You know, worth a rental. It's a movie from 2002 called Wishcraft. Okay, uh, just to set it up, there's a character. Uh, he's a he's a he's a good student. Um, He's not the most popular guy in town. He's in love with this girl who's a cheerleader. He's tutoring her in world history. Of course, she's going out with a jock. But so, you know, Brett's kind of like, okay, he doesn't have much of a chance with her. Um, he's, you know, he's, but all of a sudden he gets a package in the mail and it contains a totem, okay, with a note telling him that he's been granted three wishes. Well, anyway, the totem is a bull's penis, a severed bull's penis that he gets. It's wrapped in leather. I got one and of those. he gets yeah. I'm tired of getting those things in the mail. I tried to stop him at the post office, <laughs> but they just keep coming. Uh, but anyway, he doesn't believe it at first, but he does eventually use this, and he's shocked when his wish comes true. But at the same time that this is happening, students at his school are being killed by this by well, they're being murdered by an unknown killer, and he's wondering if his totem somehow connects to that, and if it does, how does it connect to that? Uh, this is interesting because. It has um, it has some well known performers in it. Uh, Meatloaf is in it. He plays a detective uh, in a brief scene. And it also has Zelda Rubinstein. Uh, everyone knows, of course, from the Poltergeist series. Mm. Uh, you know, one of the ones, one of the many people in Poltergeist three who said Carol Ann fifty times. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but played the little you know the little woman in the, the little woman that doesn't sound right. You know what I mean? The medium. Yeah. From the first film. Yeah, she has like okay. that little tiny voice. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but after he gets to start, this this movie is interesting because he it does have some cool kill scenes in it. There's if I'm not mistaken, this is the one where there's actually a death by bowling ball. Nice. Okay. It's not. The, it's, it definitely is not the most believable kill you're ever going to see, but it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's death by bowling ball. I'm not. I don't want anybody to get their hopes up too high going into this one. It's not. If I were to rate it, I'd probably say it's maybe a five and a half to a six, and it's worth a rental. Uh, but there are some good kills in it. The, where where this one falls apart is the end. Okay, the ending of this thing where they finally get around to who the killer is. It wraps up in a kung fu style fight sequence. It's just awful. It ends so badly. Nice. Um, but it, that's really the worst. For me, it was the worst part of the movie. So I think it's worth checking out. Yeah, from 2002, Wishcraft. Neat. Yeah, Wishcraft, not Wish. Yes, Wishcraft. W I S H Craft. Well, you- and of course, the All Hallows Eve had that excellent se- um, segment. Yes, with the, with absolutely. The, yeah, I back you on that, and you—you you know, you did it. Too. You guys keep goading me on and egging me on. I have to do it. Speaking of death by bowling ball, there's gutter balls from 2008, oh, right. and this is very uh, l- low budget. It's um a horror comedy, even to some extent. But man, this is and and in some ways, this film is inexcusable. In some ways, it's it's very offensive. But 
in terms of slasher movies and setting, okay, the acting is some of the worst I've ever seen in a horror film. And, <laughs> and this is NC-17, so it's very off-putting for some people. But I, I will say that the kills in this, which, of course, they use all kinds of bowling alley paraphernalia um, the the killer does. Tremendous. I love that. I love the bowling alley. In fact, I loved that when I first saw this, I loved the bowling lane so much that I looked it up and I was going to go there, but it had shut down. It was this place in like Western Canada. So that was regrettable. Oh, wow. But what's cool, maybe what's most notable in this conversation is the way that the killer is handled in gutter balls. And I'll just leave it at that. So that's mm. gutter balls from 2008. Another one that I try to champion all the time that some people just dismiss and it just makes me mad. And this isn't like, well, it's a slasher. It better not be High Lane. Yes. High Lane from 2009. Avoid, 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 avoid. He is so (laughs) wrong, you guys. No, I'm serious. Josh is way off on this. This this is a French film as well. And it was streaming on Netflix Watch Instantly forever. It may still be. But it, it starts out like a survival horror flick. These This group of friends are on a vacation. They're hiking up this mountain trail, and it's kind of perilous. And that's scary in and of itself. But then there's also this, like, maniac. No, it's not. There's this maniac out there in the woods. This starts preying upon them. Man, I love that film. I don't know why people don't appreciate that more. But some people do love it. Some people have listened to Jay of the Dead, and they were happy. Doc, have you seen it? No, I have not seen that yet. It's streaming on Netflix currently. Oh, worth the time. Trust. Okay, so there's that. And then what about... (laughs) Well, the reason we're going through these fast is because a lot of the listeners who have been with us a while... I thought we were doing a top five. This is like top 55. Yeah, we're getting into a bonus. It's funny because I keep writing down notes here for other ones, but go ahead. It isn't a top five. That's what you told me to prepare. I thought I thought yeah that's what I that's what I thought we were originally going to do but I'm I'm that's fine I don't think a top five would have <laughs> it's kind of good to go this way with it anyway but um, well we're gonna do we're gonna do a full blown slasher themed episode at some point which is another reason why we're being so quick about it but mm-hmm. okay since Josh is saying no more it's just running well, a little long how many slasher movies is this kid gonna watch this week <laughs> no. we got another we got another podcast coming out next week oh, they're, <laughs> just they're, real, they're gonna love I'm it. Sorry. Yeah, real quick, one I would just throw out, and it's a documentary guide, uh, and it's going to lead you on to a lot of good movies to watch with that. It's Going to Pieces, The Rise and Fall of the Slasher Film from mm-hmm. 2006. Documentary. I Yeah, I think that that one, that'll turn you on to a lot of, um, a lot of interesting uh, slasher films, too. And I'll just say the titles here of the other things I wrote down in preparation. The Mask Maker, Pelt, Killer Mermaid, which is a beastly freak slasher mixture. Chain Letter, I Saw the Devil, The Collector, and The Collection. Bill Shetty loves this. The Killer's awesome, but I think the movie's kind of terrible. But Sweatshop, The Killer is pretty awesome. Right. Motel Hell, of course, and Madison County. I have, I'm nuts about killers who wear like a pig mask. I just love that. So, <laughs> so there you go. So that, that should do him then. So there you go, Adam. You got a few few picks to watch. Let us know how many of these you watch in one week. Right. <laughs> All right. And now for one of my favorite parts of the entire show. Wolfman's got 
Well, ever since we did our Cronenberg uh, review of The Fly, I've been thinking about all of the Cronenberg films I haven't seen. There aren't that many. There are a couple. Uh, Rabbit is one of them, and I wanted to discuss it and uh, check it out, I guess, and, and discuss it because I felt that thematically possibly tied into the feature review we're doing this week, Spring. And so I thought, okay, maybe uh, this will be a good time to actually sit down and watch Rabbit. And I was glad I did. I had uh, heard mixed reviews about this film, but I liked it quite a bit. Um, the stars Marilyn Chambers, who's a pornographic actress in her first kind of mainstream role. It was produced by Ivan Reitman, and apparently he thought uh, attaching her to the film would help them sell it in foreign territories. Uh, Sissy Spacek was actually who Cronenberg wanted for the film, but the studio wouldn't allow him to cast her based on her kind of thick accent. Of course, Carrie came out while they were in production and everyone was kicking themselves that they hadn't mm-hmm. cast her before the big Carrie success. Mm-hmm. But honestly, Marilyn Chambers did a pretty good job for not being typically a mainstream actress. Basically what you have is this woman gets in a, in a wreck, a, a uh, motorcycle crash and um, she's taken to the hospital and she's undergoes like a, a surgery and, and typical kind of Cronenbergian body horror. There's a lot of gross um, bodily things happening in this film, but essentially she turns into a vampire of sorts and creates kind of rage zombies <laughs> <laughs> which is weird. It's it's a weird mix of monster. And, you know, it is very Cronenbergian. It feels like a, a bit like Slither and actually Spring. There was There's an element to her as a monster. She's got an armpit, well, <laughs> hole. <laughs> and, uh, and, and out of it comes kind of a phallic protrusion of sorts. It's how she uh, does in her victims. So basically this um, kind of phallic, Stinger comes out of her armpit hole and um, and yeah, she attacks and feeds on her victims uh, blood through this thing. And it, it kind of reminded me of the kind of phallic stomach thing that uh, is in Slither and also one of the moments, one of the key moments in spring, but it's a disgusting little film. It's not one of Cronenberg's best, but I think it is worth checking out. If you're a fan of his, um, it's it is one of his more. It feels like more of a straight horror film than a lot of his films do. I think um, if you compare it to something like Videodrome or something, this feels more like a horror movie. But it is definitely kind of an amorphous, um, inexact monster. Again, though, very well relating to what we're going to be dealing with in spring. So yes, yeah. For me, I would probably give this film a six and I'd call it a rental. (laughs) Yeah, I reviewed this back on the weekly horror movie podcast with Midnight Corey back in the day. And the cover art was the first thing that really attracted me to this. And talk about a scary poster. I mean, if you look that up on IMDb, that's pretty freaky, right? And it's called Rabid. I mean, yeah, it's kind of gross looking. that That drew me in for sure. And I loved it that you said it was like rage virus because that was the first thing that I thought is like, wow, is this maybe a predecessor or inspiration for like 28 days later? It feels like it, doesn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, so that aspect I loved because I'm 28 days later in my top 10. But that bear hug, see, the way she kills people with her underarm protrusion, which is a a pretty little protrusion, by the way, is she basically does (laughs) just like this bear hug. Like, so she hugs people to death. And, and, and that really bugged me. I'm like, because number one, hugs are not that threatening, right? Well, and, that's what the beauty of it, though. It's like... Yeah, well, but see, it's not fun to watch. It's fun to think about, maybe. If I read a book about a hugger killer, <laughs> that would be different from watching a hugger killer. But, and so that's one aspect that bugged me. And because of the nature of it, like when she's got her arms wrapped around, then obviously that thing attacks, which we can't see and do not see. So it doesn't show much yeah. as, as far as that goes. And that really kind of bugs me a little bit. I think, well, you know, it plays like a vampire slash zombie movie in, in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I, outbreak movie. It, it feels like the beginning of... Of an outbreak, basically. Yeah, it sure does. And I will say, I mean, the highest praise I can give this movie is that I think the ending is absolutely pitch perfect. The way this ends, I couldn't love it more. And I think that's really important in a horror film for the mm-hmm. way that it ends. But to me, it's not scary at all. I don't think it's suspenseful. Really? What? And And I was not surprised one bit. And this is not disparaging, but when you said you liked it, I, I was not surprised because it's kind of an art film and it's pretty slow, like to me. I mean, I was I was kind of bored watching it, to be honest. I don't think it's slow. It's I mean, I don't know. It's a Cronenberg movie. It's it's early in his career. It's only his second film, you know, and you, I think taking that into account, he does quite a quite a good job for a second film. And it's very it's totally unique. I mean, think about it, like especially in the time that is is coming out. <laughs> This is a totally unique film in 1979, you know? It's a lot more watchable than some of his other stuff, especially as a horror fan. That's supposed to mean. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm talking about, you know, from a horror fan perspective. I mean... I don't think he's made anything that's unwatchable. I I wouldn't say unwatchable, but like, for example, Spider, that... I don't know. That, well, that, that's a that's a more difficult film, that, but that's a rare. I mean, that's not a good example of his style. I would say. Well, that's uh, it's still him, and and that's what it, I'm it's, saying. It's atypical for him, though. I would say. Yeah, and so I that's why I think this is probably more, uh, you know, approachable for a lot of people. But yeah, for me, this is like a four point five. It just barely missed the low priority rental, so it's an avoid to me. But I'm glad oh, you're, you liked you're out it. Of your mind. I'm glad you liked it. Because yeah, is it an avoid? It's it's like a totally unique film. Because it's boring, it doesn't show anything. Like it, except every for every movie has to show everything. Except for Marilyn Chambers, <laughs> you got that. But like, if I had ninety-one minutes to sit down and watch a movie about the rage virus, I'd watch Twenty-Eight Days Later. You know, yeah, why but- would I watch that? When I have 28 days later. Because you don't want to watch the same movie over and over again. You want to expand your horizons. Well, I've already seen Rage and I'm like, I mean, Rabid, sorry. (laughs) Now I'm calling it Rage. (laughs) Well, for you, yeah. I mean, but you've already seen it. I don't think it's an avoid. I think, I mean, I don't know. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, I could see people appreciating it. It almost made a low priority rental for me. Almost. I mean, I will say this was a lot tamer than I was anticipating. I'd been avoiding it for a reason. It looked on the to be on the ickier end of the Cronenberg body horror. That was not the case. Yeah. But that doesn't bother me. I mean, it was it's a fine little film. As as a Wolfman's got Nard's film, it's uh, you know, maybe a little light compared to some of the other films I've talked about. <laughs> but but I didn't know what I was getting into, and that's kind of the point of these, is there are films I've kind of been ignoring or avoiding for one reason or another. So Yeah. I don't I was really I was really happy with it. It was a it was a fun and unique, again, I've said singular kind of experience for me. I knew you would like it. I mean, especially since you like things like Under the Skin and stuff like that. I just knew you would like it. I would have put money on it. Okay, and I also understand that you have a very interesting top five list for us tonight. I do. So I was thinking of possibly uh, as a new segment, something that I could do is take a look at an actor who made a lot of movies, a lot of classic movies, or was around during the classic period uh, for Hollywood. Uh, and really did leave a mark on that time period, even later, I mean, into the 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever, uh, but does not get the recognition that they deserve. Uh, And what I was going to do this time is I was going to take a look at Lionel Atwell, okay, who's an actor who I think just does not get the the recognition he deserves, Um, or or rarely does. I think he's, he's often overlooked with, when you look at Lugosi, Karloff, um, Cheney, Vincent Price, and so forth. Uh, he's not usually he's not usually mentioned alongside them, and I think he really should be, uh, at least somewhere in, in that list, because this is a guy who made some good movies, made some influential movies, uh, and he himself was was excellent in them. Um, so I was going to present uh, as as a top five list of my top five Lionel Atwell movies. Now, going forward, I don't know that it's always going to be a top five list. This might not always be, but it's always I'm always going to sort of throw the spotlight on an actor mm-hmm. because I have one actor in mind, possibly for the next segment, who didn't make five movies. He only made a, he only made a couple, but was so incredible in them that I think everybody should definitely check these movies out. But anyway, just real quick, my top five for Lionel Atwill. And number five, this is one that probably should actually be number one. The only reason I'm making it number five is because I mentioned it in my top five for Bella Lugosi as well. And that is 1939's Son of Frankenstein. This is, for me, and I think, I'm pretty sure I said it before, a lot of people Always look at Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein as the two classics. I think it was a trilogy of classics. I really think Son of Frankenstein absolutely deserves to be mentioned right alongside those other two. It does feature, yeah. Uh, Bela Lugosi, it is his best performance, I think. When you look at Lugosi's, and that's saying something. You know, it is it is Bela Lugosi's best performance. And for anybody out there, Lionel Atwell plays a an, an inspector. And <clears throat> he was the direct inspiration for the character that Kenneth Morris played in Young Frankenstein. Uh, the the guy with the with the wooden arm. Because his Inspector Krogh is a guy who as a child had an encounter with the monster who pulled his right arm right off, you know, while he was young. And now as he's growing up, he's he's sort of focusing on making sure this monster never comes back and and he's, he never again, um, uh, you know, terrorizes this town. 
Um, I'm not going to go too deep into this movie again because um, I, I talked about it before. But if you have not seen Son of Frankenstein, it's one that you have to check out, especially if you love the old time horror movies mm, um, like I that. do. Yeah, it, it's really – even the way it opens, you know, there's a scene where these people are like these, – these kids are underneath the, the castle and there's Lugosi looking down on them. You know, mm-hmm. it really is. It's just a, it's just a great scene. Now, number four on the list, it's staying with Universal and with sequels. It's one that is half of a great movie, but falls apart a little bit at the end. And it's Frankenstein meets the Wolfman from 1943. This was I can't remember what number in the Frankenstein series. It was the first sequel to The Wolfman, and I'm not sure if it was fifth or what it was in the Frankenstein series at this point. I'm pretty sure that they had come out with up to Ghost of Frankenstein by this point. So this would have been the fifth Frankenstein movie, but it was the first sequel to The Wolfman. And it opens with The Wolfman. It opens in the cemetery in Wales. You got these grave robbers. They're breaking into the, the crypt to get it, um, the remains of Larry Talbot. Well, his expo- his body hits, you know, that his body's exposed to the light of the moon. He comes back to life. And he thought he was dead. So now he's once again a werewolf. He wants to die. It's the whole thing. You know, he wants to, he doesn't want this curse. He wants to die. He goes back to the gypsy woman, Maleva, you know, played by Maria uh, Uspenskaya. And she says, okay, what we got to do is we got to go to the castle of Baron Frankenstein. He's the one man who has power over life and death. He'll know how to end this curse. But when they get there, they find out the Baron's dead. Um, His daughter, as uh, the only one left and Talbot during one of his transformations added accidentally reawakens uh, Frankenstein's monster who was trapped in this ice underneath the castle. But Frankenstein's monster is played by Bella Lugosi. The first time that Bella Lugosi ever played Frankenstein, there's this whole story that he turned down the role in 31 because he thought it was beneath him. I don't know how true that is because there is supposedly footage out there of Lugosi in the makeup for Frankenstein. I've not seen it, but I've heard rumors that this exists. Uh, it's very unfortunate in a way because it looks like Lugosi gives a shallow performance, a one note performance as the monster. He's walking around with his arms out, just sort of stumbling around, almost unaware of, of what's going on around him. He, he basically is playing him like just a, a child almost who's learning how to walk and then has no idea of, of any, you know, very different from the way the monster had been portrayed up to this point. Well, what's unfortunate about it is that Lugosi was instructed to play the monster blind that he was blinded at the end of the previous film. So he's to play the monster as blind. Well, he does that. That's what he's doing with his arms out, walking around like that. But then they drop that. They cut that part out of the movie. So you're watching it and people are actually, I, I read people are actually laughing in the theater because they're like, it, it, it's like that type of performance where he just looks sort of stumbling around yeah. and nobody knows why. And that was the reason why is he was, he was told he's blind. You have to play him as blind. And then they completely drop that from, un, un, you know, without any explanation, drop that from the movie. So it just, it's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. The parts with Frankenstein at the end, they didn't work for me. Okay. And it's because of the course of the portrayal and also just where the story goes. But the first half of this movie with Lawrence Talbot, it works so well. It really does. 
Lionel Atwill is in this one. I'm pretty sure he plays he plays uh, one of the officials in the town uh, where Frankenstein's monster is. Uh, it's not as big of a role, but if you want to see a, a solid sequel to The Wolfman, this is worth seeing. Just expect that once it gets to the Frankenstein's monster, that part of it, uh, it falls apart a little bit. And I think this might have been the first. We were talking about mashups with Freddy versus Jason. This might have been the first time that Universal put two of their monsters together. I can't say for sure whether it is or not. Interesting. But I, yeah. I think this might be the one. I think this might be the first time that they put two of their monsters together. Other than Bride. Other than Bride. Well, Bride, yes. Other than Bride of Frankenstein, which was sort of a character along the same vein as Frankenstein. You're right. But where they actually took one from one series and put it with one from another series. And in number three, we have uh, this one's from 1941. And this is uh, really interesting because it's not a well-known universal film, but it actually had Lon Chaney Jr. in it before he did The Wolfman. Uh, And it's the first time that uh, that, it's the first of the movies I'm talking about where Lionel Atwell plays a mad scientist, Hmm. which as you'll see, is, is a theme he's going to return to in some of the other films I'm going to be talking about. This is called Man-Made Monster from 1941. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. And I really did like this this movie. Okay, to set it up, we open up. There's, it's It opens up on a rainy night. There's a bus flying down the road, and it actually skids off the road, crashes into an electrical tower. There's a big fire. The only survivor is a guy named Dan McCormick, played by... Lon Chaney Jr. He's known as uh, Dynamo Dan the Electric Man because he works at a local carnival. He pretends to absorb electricity. That's his job. So anyway, uh, this doctor wants to know why he survived the accident. It's Dr. Lawrence, played by this guy Samuel Hines. So he invites Dan over and he conducts experiments on him to see maybe he is immune to electricity. Maybe, you know, that there's something to this. But um, someone else interested in that is is Dr. Lawrence's partner, Dr. Regis, who's played by Lionel Atwell. He's pretty convinced that he can, you know, he can harness electricity to control another person, turning them into sort of his almost like his uh, minion, you know, to do his bidding. So he's he gets a hold of, of Dan. But even though it was Dr. Regis who sort of was controlling Dan, he does something that gets him thrown in jail and accused of murder, which he really didn't have anything to do with. But anyway, this is another one where you're, he's a, he plays a monster. You know, the Lon Chaney Jr. plays what amounts to a monster. You know, when, when you see him, when he's under the control of Dr. Regis, he's bright, you know, he's glowing, which was actually a very good effect for back in the day, too. I thought it, I thought it really worked well. Uh, for this movie that, 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 you know, the glowing effect that they had, uh, that, that Cheney, that they, you know, whenever he was on screen under the, under his control. But really, Arnold Atwill is the one who kind of makes this movie. He really does play the mad scientist well. And by this point in his career, he had sort of perfected that role. And he, you could tell he's just really getting into this. And, and it's, and it's, it's his sort of charisma that, that you're kind of drawn to when you're when you're watching this film. And it's sort of a sci-fi horror. And like I said, it does have some really good special effects in it, too. Um, but that's my number three, Man-Made Monster. Going on to number two. Now, these are uh, two of um, the last two are very early films in Lionel Atwell's career. And both of them are unique 
in that they were made in the early 1930s. These I'm pretty sure were made by Warner Brothers, both of these films. But both of them, despite being made in the early 30s, were shot in color, the old two-color process. And the first one is the original, well, an original film, led to a remake, is Mystery of the Wax Museum from 1933. This is, was eventually remade as House of Wax with Vincent Price. Mm-hmm. And this one has Lionel Atwill in that role that that Vincent Price would play um, in in the movie from the 1950s, the one that basically made Vincent Price a, a horror icon that that set him on his on the course for for horror. Uh, he had made some horror movies previously, but House of Wax was sort of the first one that that um, you know was like really popular at the time. And interestingly enough, that also had a gimmick that was in 3D. But this was it was a two color process. For, for this film. So it's just very interesting to see a movie from the early thirties in color. You know, it, it, it does add something to it, but anyway, the story is, you know, he, uh, Ivan played by Lionel Atwell. He, he co-owns this London based wax museum and uh, he has these life-size wax mannequins, you know, of history of, of figures from history. Um, and, and people look at him and say, wow, they're like works of art here, but he's got a business partner who wants out because they're not making any money. So in order to sort of recoup his losses, this partner sets fire to the museum, wants to collect on the insurance policy. You know, Ivan tries to stop him. He's knocked out. He's burned up in the fire. That's the last we see of him for a while. But then a few years later, he resurfaces. Uh, He's once again opened a wax museum. And his opening of his new museum happens to coincide with these very strange suicides that have been going on where the bodies uh, after the suicides have been stolen from the morgue. A reporter uh, is assigned by her editor to write a story about, you know, what's going on with these with these stolen corpses. And she comes to suspect that Ivan has something to do with it and um, happens to also notice at the same time that several of the wax figures in his museum bear a strong resemblance to the missing bodies. This is also interesting because it has Faye Ray. Faye Ray co-stars in this. Does she scream the entire time nonstop no. like in King Kong? No, not, not in King <laughs> No, she does not. She, maybe she screams once or twice. I, it's been a while since I've seen this, but okay. uh, no, not quite like King Kong. She, she's not, you know, Lionel Atwood doesn't carry her to the top of the Empire State Building or anything like that. Mm. But anyway, things, you know, get a little bit strange because during the course of the investigation, Ivan becomes – he. It gets a romantic – what am I trying to say? He He's romantically attracted to Charlotte, Faye Ray's character, and he thinks of possibly making her his next creation. Because obviously, you know, the, 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 I don't want to go too deep into spoilers well, here, I mean, but I think you could kind of guess when talking about he has a whack museum and how some of them are resembling the, yeah, the uh, bodies that are disappearing. I think it's like no mystery what's going uh, on here. A wax woman that can never have a headache. Or never there say no. <laughs> right, exactly. Terrible, Josh. <laughs> Lionel Atwill is, is really good. I, he he's This is, again, an early one for him, and he is so strong in this role. And it, the way his character sort of evolves in it is interesting, too. Just the way Vincent Price's was in the first movie, you feel so bad for him at the beginning. Because this is a guy who really loves these wax characters that he's created. And he's just got this jerk for a partner who's only in it for the money. Um, he wants to destroy them all and then basically turns turns Vincent Price into a killer. It's sort of what happens in, in this one as well. But the ending scene in this one, in, in this movie, 
I think is is even stronger than the one at the end because I think they even went a little bit further with what's revealed when the mask comes off in this one. Again, this is what is considered pre-code. You could get away with a little bit more in the movies at this time than you could even in the 1950s by the, you know, when they did the, the remake that said there were times when I was watching this movie, I kind of wished it wasn't black and white because you had these fogs, these foggy streets. And for some reason, you know, with the shadows and everything, I just think that the fog filled streets, they take on more of, a, of an eerie feel in black and white than they do in color. You know, especially at this time period, when when you when you've got that going on in the 1930s, there were foggy streets all over the place in, in horror movies back then, and I think they'd really perfected it. And I thought they the, the way they looked in black and white was was really was really interesting. But that said, this is it's just it it's it's neat to see an early 30s movie in color. And Lionel Atwill really is the reason to to check this film out. Interestingly enough, it was directed also by Michael Curtiz, who would go on to direct such movies as The Adventures of Robin Hood and Casablanca, among others. Yeah. Uh, very, very, very interesting director who um, directed, I want to say almost, he, over, well over 100 movies. I mean, he was doing a few a year there for, for a time. Um, but yet some of the movies he was turning out were, were really impressive. I think he also did Yankee Noodle Dandy with, with James Cagney a few years later. Just a very, uh, very interesting guy. Um, okay, and that brings us to the last one that I have for you here. And again, this is an early 30s movie. It has Lionel Atwell playing a mad scientist, and it also happens to be in color. And the movie this time is Dr. X. This is the earliest. This is from 1932. And interestingly enough, it has Lionel Atwell and Faye Ray. Mm, this is a great movie, by the way. Yeah, this this one really is. This this is a this is this is an excellent film. It starts off there's a reporter and he's been uh, you know following the police for a few days. They're investigating the string of killings known as the Moon Killer Murders. Because what happens is each one happened under the light of a full moon. Well, the police eventually come to the conclusion that the weapon used is a specialized scalpel. That, that and they're thinking it might have come from this nearby uh, mil- uh, medical academy. Uh, they're um, so they go to the academy. Dr. Xavier, played by Lionel Atwell, he's sort of the head of this academy. He thinks the killer is probably one of his colleagues, and he tells the authorities, you know, he has a way to figure out which one it is. He's got he's, – he knows how he, – he can figure out who this is. So he brings the, the academy's top scientist to his mansion, sort of out in the middle of nowhere, where he lives with his daughter, Joan. Fay Ray plays his daughter in this movie. So he hooks each, each of them up to this machine – that, that he had come up with, and then he reenacts uh, one of the recent murders. He thinks his equipment will identify the killer. It'll sort of analyze their physical reaction to what they're seeing. But something goes wrong, and an actual murder occurs during this experiment. And I'm not going to take it any further than that, because then, you know, the story gets uh, actually more interesting as, uh, from that point forward. Again, it's shot in the two-color process. But this one, this time around, this movie used the color to a much better effect, I thought. There's there's a scene later in the movie where, where there's this lit candle, and it's got the killer in it, and it, it's, it's really vibrant. I mean, it really looks sharp. Uh, even in the two-color process, it looks really good. But again... Uh, this is what, what I thought was interesting about this movie, along with Lionel Atwell, who's excellent, is this is Faye Ray's introduction to the genre. 
a few years later, obviously, she would make history with King Kong, but this was her first horror film. She does scream in this one, Jay. Okay, not all the time again. This mm-hmm. is not like the, the King Kong screaming Fay Ray. Yeah. So that that's kind of interesting there. But the movie has a lot more to it. It's got this deformed killer, again, sort of setting up the mad scientist. It, there's even references to cannibalism in, in this one. So this is this is one well worth checking out. Again, it's Doctor X from 1932, and interestingly enough, the sequel to this, The Return of Doctor X, which I think was made in in the late 30s, like maybe 38, 39, somewhere around there, is the one and only horror film that Humphrey Bogart ever appeared in, and Humphrey Bogart plays the character, the same character that won the Doctor X of that yeah. movie, um, which is not as good a movie. Okay, it's 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 just not. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's Humphrey Bogart would tell everybody it's the worst movie he ever appeared in. Uh, and I don't know if I'd go quite that far. I haven't seen all of Humphrey Bogart's movies, but it's definitely not as good as the first Doctor X. So those are the five movies for Lionel Atwell, all worth checking out, all definitely worth your time. And um, going forward, I'll have another actor from the golden age of horror that I think is is worth uh, you know worth throwing a spotlight on. Cool. Well done. And just as a little aside with with Dr. X, um, there was a time for a long time, Warner Brothers didn't have a print of this in in color. They didn't have their color print. Everyone assumed it was lost. Everybody who had seen this movie um, uh, had assumed that, okay, that the color print was gone and they had only seen it in black and white. I believe they ended up finally finding it, if I'm not mistaken, in Jack Warner's personal collection. Weird. Uh, and then they got it and they took it to the UCLA archives who restored it. And, um, that's awesome. and now it's, that's the one we have. So it's it's they, they found this uh, in Jack Warner's home. That's really I'm cool. guessing. Yeah, I'm guessing after he passed away. I'm with you on most of those. I haven't seen the, the House of Wax, but the, yeah, the rest of those are great, great movies for sure. Yeah, definitely. And especially Dr. X. I was so impressed with that film. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, with and just just how how you know where they went with it. Like I said, the cannibalism and, and some of the um, uh, so some of the directions they took it again pre code, where they were getting away with more. You know, they they were getting away with with more gruesome material than they could than they would be able to get away with two years later. Well, I remember on Planet Macabre how you kind of covered the classics on mm-hmm. your segment each time, and yeah. there was a contingency or there was a certain number of people that really loved the classic horror stuff and i i'd be really interested i wish we could somehow get a measurement and know how many of our audience for horror movie podcasts go back and visit these classic horror flicks because i actually think they're really fun i think it's pretty cool to go visit it it's it's a lot different than what we have now but it it is and you know it's really interesting i just want to throw this out there i'm not sure what episode it was of a weekly horror podcast it was one of the later ones. I think it was it was when uh, Midnight Corey was in as the host at this point. Mm-hmm. We had interviewed an author who had put together this book. Um, he, had, he had created this character who had lived for a very long time, almost like this character who was perpetually young, who was interviewed and had been alive at the time of on the Universal set with Lugosi and Karloff and everything. And he had sort of created this book around that. Yes, it's episode 22. The actor-author okay. is Bradford Tatum. Yes, that's it. And wow, that was such an interesting interview. This guy was fascinating. I was like, 
I, I couldn't even think of questions to ask him. I just wanted him to just keep talking about what he was talking about. But and he was a big fan. He, I mean, his statement was, you know, horror is better in black and white. I remember him saying that during the show. <laughs> but during that episode, we also covered at the second portion. We covered Halloween. Well, the first part of that, we covered a movie that Bradford had chosen. It was The Lodger from the 1940s, the version with uh, Laird Krieger, and just shot in such a way. It was really fascinating. During that episode, when we were talking about Halloween, Bill Shetty made a statement that he would rather watch The Lodger again. He would choose to watch The Lodger again before he would choose to watch Halloween again. I remember that. Yes, that was a very <laughs> controversial statement. It was a controversial day, and he did give he gave Halloween a ten. It's not like you know he gave it a ten. He recognized it for you know for the, the yeah. classic that it was. But I thought that that was especially from him, from from Bill Shetty. I thought that was a very interesting statement. Yeah, he loved the which, Lodger, which speaks a lot to to that movie too. The the Lodger from the from from the forties. I can't remember the year exactly. It's forty four, nineteen forty four. Yeah, and interestingly, he gave the Lodger. A 7.5 out of 10 right. said bye. There were scenes in the lodger that some of what he objected to, there, there are some scenes that take place in a dance hall and you have can-can uh, dancers and things like that where they give a dedicated a little bit of time to them. So I think that was one of his one of his minuses in that one. But um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great I love that particular episode. I was oh. I wasn't even on it, but people should go back and listen to it. It's the weekly horror movie podcast, episode 22. It's called Probing Eyes. And you can find that in the archives there at the top of our website. It's worth your time. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay, I had something I wanted to run by you guys real quick just to see what you think about this. I will admit this is very ambitious and it might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, but we've been ambitious before, right? Oh, I think so, yeah. Okay, See, Roger Ebert, the late, great Roger Ebert, used to have a little thing that he did. It was like a column, I believe, in his newspaper that he wrote for. It was called Movie Answer Man. And basically, people would write in and ask him questions about movies, just any question under the sun. And he would typically do a little bit of research if he needed to and write back and sometimes he'd try to be funny and so forth but it was actually a very fascinating column i've always loved those and so i thought even though we do not regard ourselves as any kind of experts of any sort i think it would be awesome to have what is called horror movie answer men and that would be us and we would invite the listeners to write in and ask us horror movie questions that we could you know research in most cases, we'd probably need to research and then give answers to those. What do you think about that? Yeah. yeah that could be interesting. Yeah, that sounds like fun. Yeah. So I, I think it'd be fun too. Like I'm really working like feverishly on a blog that has like, I've got like 10 different horror topics that I'm writing on. And I think it would be really fun to really delve into the genre and kind of like some of the theory and the things that we get into and analyzing things. So we want to invite the listeners then to write your horror related questions, things maybe you've always wondered about. And we'll try to, if we can dip into the industry and ask those people for the answers, we'll try to get the answers for you. Now, here's what we're going to do though. This actually plays into a themed episode idea we have for the future, which would be maybe the top 10 most controversial horror topics. And so maybe what we would do is, is, kind of collect your questions for a while and if we get like 
a lot of a certain question, especially one that's controversial, maybe we would know that goes on that themed episode. And then we would slowly start answering those. But um, So we invite people to write to us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. We think that would be fun. One last yeah. thing real quick. Guys, did you see the new poster for the new Poltergeist movie? I don't think so. Oh, no, okay. I, don't, I don't think I did either. Oh, let's look it up right now. We got to talk about this just real fast. Um, it's got a crazy clown on the front, and I want to know how you feel about it. Oh, I did see that. Yes, I did see that. I'm loving um, it. Personally. I thought it was. In- I thought uh, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought it's. I thought it's pretty cool. Um, I, I gotta tell you though, I'm, t- I'm, I'm surprised how much of a problem I'm having with this remake. Yeah. Um, and I, and I saw the trailer for it. It it doesn't look bad. It doesn't look like a bad movie. But the original had a lot more, I guess, sentimental value for me than I even than I ever thought it did, because I'm just really reluctant. I, I got to thinking about it. I mean, I saw it during its theatrical run. I saw it, me and a bunch of friends went and saw it in the summer. It was one of the first movies I ever recorded on on videotape, and I must have watched it 20 times because back then we, you know, we had to buy our own videotapes, and I didn't really have a job. <laughs> So it took me forever to get another videotape, so I must have watched it 20 times. Uh, I'm really, really having a hard time that they're remaking it. And I'm not the type of, you know, I'm not the type of person who, who dislikes remakes. You know, I, I don't mind them. Sometimes I think they're really good. I love the Evil Dead remake. Um, and that's one of my favorite horror movies. Uh, I like the Dawn of the Dead remake. That's one of my, you know, the original is one of my favorite horror movies. And both of them, I rank higher than Poltergeist. But for some reason, I'm really having a hard time with this. <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you mean. It doesn't look like the more I think about it, and the more I see it. And honestly, this this poster that you're talking about, the less interested I am in seeing the movie. All oh, the poster kind of turned you off then. Yeah, big time. Really? Wow. Well, I... they play up. They play up the clown, which was only a very small aspect of the original. People remember the clown from the original. They remember that clown doll from the original, definitely. Yeah. yeah. There's no doubt about it. But it it was just a very minor part of the overall film, and and it I, it might just be with the original. You really did care about this family. You know, as as it was presented in that movie, you you really cared about what happened to them. You really wanted to see them get this girl back. And are they going to sort of abandon that in favor of the special effects and the and the and the standard jump scares that you get in the PG-13 horror movies? (laughs) Well, I think I know what you're saying. I think I know where you guys are coming from. So are you saying this would be like since the. I'm just talking about the artwork for it right now. I'm sorry. I'm still stuck on that. But if they remade like Close Encounters of the Third Kind and then they put mashed potatoes on the cover. That's what the minimalist poster design for that movie would be. <laughs> yeah. Like if they put the potatoes on there, it would be along those lines. But even that might be a little more clever because I think putting the clown on it is sort of a, maybe an obvious thing, you know, especially with The Conjuring and the doll and Annabelle and all that. It might just be more of a of kind of a fad to, to sort of lean on the doll at this point. Or it seems to me more like the old grindhouse posters where they put something on the poster that doesn't really play a big part in the movie just to get you to go see it. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Maybe this, maybe the clown plays a much bigger role in the remake, but if it is the way it's 
it's handled in the first film, then it's kind of a cheap marketing gimmick in my opinion. Oh, wow. Well, I'm, I'm very disappointed in both of your answers. I think you guys make, brought up good points, but I really am excited about this. Having seen the clown, I will say I have not watched any of the trailers. I've tried to go in absolutely blind to this. And by the way, guys, I love Sam Rockwell. You've got to have a little bit of extra faith since he's involved uh, with this project. Absolutely. I'm a big Sam Rockwell fan too. The fact that he's in it, it does matter, you know, because I, I think he's, I have never seen a bad Sam Rockwell film. Mm-hmm. What about you Ninja know? Turtles? I, well, Ninja <laughs> Turtles, yeah. But I've never seen, you know what? I've never seen Ninja Turtles, so I can still oh. hold by my statement that I've never <laughs> seen a bad Sam, a bad Sam Rockwell, or at least an uninteresting Sam Rockwell performance. Let's put it that way. He's always a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, to watch on screen. So, yes, the, the definite points that he's going to be playing, I guess, is it Steven? I guess he's going to be taking the role of the father. I don't know. I'm just I, and it's it really doesn't have anything to do with the trailer. It doesn't have anything to do with the movie. And of course, they're remaking everything. But I'm just really I can't get over it. There's just something about it that's, that's really giving me a hard time. about. I, I, it's going to take me a while to see it, you know, to, to, to get out there and. And see it. I may. I'll try to see it right away. But it's. Oof. I don't well, know. I don't I, know. Okay. One more thing. Then uh, this is the last thing I'll say about it. Uh, I think the director. This will give you a little hope. Is Gil Kennan. He was the director of Monster House, and that's actually a really good sign to me because I think Monster House is a tremendous horror movie. I mean, it's built exactly like a horror movie. Obviously, it's a kids movie. It's an animated film, but that thing is right. built correctly and you can tell that Gil Kennan just based on Monster House you can tell that he knows how horror works and so since Poltergeist was kind of um you know a PG back in the day it was a PG more family friendly type horror movie maybe he's the right decision for a PG-13 yeah well Poltergeist they, they wanted to rate it R and Spielberg fought it without making any cuts and got it down to a 13 because he was Spielberg. Just another little uh, jab at the MPAA there that it doesn't, you know, (laughs) depending on who you are, you can sometimes get what you want. But they originally rated that R after the first viewing. Mm. Well, that's encouraging. That makes me even feel more encouraged about it. So that is slated for release on May 22nd, 2015. So we'll see how it goes. We'll bring you a review of it here on Horror Movie Podcast. Let us know in the show notes what you think of this cover art for Poltergeist. So, guys, this week I went to the store and I heard Late Phases was coming out on DVD. Did you guys see this? I sent you an email earlier today. I loved your email. (laughs) I saw it. Yes, I saw it. And I saw it live in Walmart in the flesh, so I know what you're talking about. Makes me so mad. Tell it, Josh. Tell <laughs> tell the listeners why you're mad about this. Because they ch- they changed. I mean, first of all, I hate when the movie has a great poster and then they put this really cheesy DVD cover on it. I want the good art on my DVD if I'm going to buy it. First of all, secondly, yeah. they changed the title of the film. You know, yeah. it's they did this with. Edge of Tomorrow, famously this year, this last year, it was called Edge of Tomorrow was the name of the film. Um, the tagline was Live, Die, Repeat. And they, on the DVD, kind of made it look like that was the title of the movie. I guess they thought that was a better title than Edge of Tomorrow, which I, I'm not going to argue with them about. But what if I'm looking for Edge of Tomorrow? How am I supposed to find it? Right. <laughs> and that one's got Tom Cruise on the cover. 
luckily I'm a werewolfile, or else I would have never picked up Night of the Lone Wolf. Um, it was really tiny written above it, late phases. So it says late phases, Night of the Wolf on the DVD. Wow. Drove me nuts when I saw that. See, I thought that when I saw that, because I realized that they had done that when I saw it in Walmart, but I thought that they were they had just added a subtitle or that was the subtitle. And you know how it's kind of in vogue now to have really small font sizes. And so I thought that's very weird to make the actual title in this tiny font. Yeah, it is really, it would really be weird. The movie doesn't have a subtitle, at least not on the original theatrical poster, which is so awesome. Um, the red no one, subtitle. right? You're talking yeah. about the red poster. Yeah. yeah. It just says late phases on it. There's no night of the wolf. This on the DVD, you're right. It has late phases colon night of the one wolf. So then I'm like, Oh, is this like a sequel already? But right. no, it's got the same two actors in it. So super annoying. Yeah. It does. It just made you right. It makes it more confusing. What's the point of changing it at, at that stage? I know. I got a theory. I think that they probably thought that, Okay, late phases doesn't say werewolf to 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 anybody. So we, you know, we got to put wolf in there somehow, right? And night of the is a famous titling for horror films. So I think they, you know, whoever their distributors were, right, Josh? Probably those people decided, oh, we need to be a little more descriptive here. Yeah, I mean, I would. It's just a cheap marketing thing, and I think it doesn't show faith in the audience. But whatever, they're trying to pull in people who, and you know, f- to be fair, it's a small. It was a small release film, so yeah, they're trying to pull in more people with this new cover, new title. I still think the old cover was co- way cooler than mm-hmm. the new one, but mm-hmm. I give you that for sure. That's a problem. That's one of the problems I think with with that sort of thing is that you get. These companies, their research divisions get involved. You know, it's not really an artistic decision. It's more of a, well, we see covers that look like this performing better than covers that look like that. (laughs) Yes. Um, So why don't we just change (laughs) it to this? And I think you can get away with that more with a movie like Late Phases, like you said, a smaller film than you could with, you know, even a big one. Although I, I have no explanation for Edge of Tomorrow and Live, Die, Repeat. I actually have that, and you're absolutely right. It makes it look, that's the big, right on the front, Live, Die, Repeat. That's all you see on the front cover of that uh, of that Blu-ray. Um, and you have to turn it on its side before you even see Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah, that that really upset me. And I think what bugged me the most about that is the title because I researched this in our end of the year show, and I'm sorry, this isn't a horror film, so I hope this is remotely interesting to somebody out there. But the title is still officially Edge of Tomorrow, but everybody assumed or decided that the title must be Live, Die, Repeat, and that's what people started calling it. And that bugs me worse, because, Josh, tell me, as a filmmaker, if you named your movie one thing, and then people started calling it something else, would that irritate you? I mean, if I named it Edge of Tomorrow and someone called it Live, Die, Repeat, I might be encouraged, but <laughs> uh-huh. I, yeah, I mean, I would be annoyed if, uh, you know, if we came up with a, something interesting and unique and it gets changed to the most kind of obvious pandering, lowest common denominator kind of a title. Yeah. I felt the same way when they released the battery on Blu-ray. Yeah. The, the Blu-ray cover is so cheesy and just like typical when the movie poster again it doesn't exactly communicate what the movie is but it's art i don't know it's it's hard i mean i understand they've got to 
they've got marketing to do, but could they at least maybe hire a better advertising agency if they're going to change everything <laughs> yeah. on us? When you get an interesting poster too, it stands out because so many movie posters you go around nowadays are just the stars. When they have a star in there, it's just the star standing there and, and posing or yeah. looking off into the distance or doing something Mugging. Uh, as, as opposed to anything of, of actual interest. It's the Miramax formula, basically. Yeah, exactly. I think the one, what was the one that, I think the worst offender that came out, and that's another DVD, was the, um, I can never remember the name of this movie, the Tom Hanks one, Road to Perdition. Mm. You yeah. know, I had, had a really cool sort of cover, him and, him and his son in, in silhouette, and then the cover of the DVD is just a close-up of Tom Hanks' face. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, the screen poster was such an interesting poster, the original, and then... When the DVD comes out, it's just all of these WB teen actors, you know, standing there with their arms folded. I don't know. And I noticed that, let's see, the Bigfoot one with Bobcat Goldthwait. Yeah. What was that called? Willow Creek. Yeah, Willow Creek. There was a really good Willow Creek art, right? Yeah, you know how much I love that Alex Pardee poster. It's amazing. Same. Yeah, me too. And did they use that? No, they just used a big red foot. I mean, a big, you know, foot, which whatever, you know, I mean, again, it still communicates the idea, but it's just way less imaginative, way less artistic. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. I would hang that, that other Willow Creek poster on my wall. It's that good. It's incredible. Yeah, if the movie didn't suck so bad. Easy. Easy. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Didn't you say you had another news item too? I did. Um, you know, horror movie podcast speaks and Sean Cunningham listens. Apparently um, there are two new Friday the 13th projects coming out. Apparently, I don't know how recent this is. Someone was emailing me this today and I haven't been able to find the source, but they said it has been confirmed that they're rebooting Friday the 13th again with the found footage uh, version of the film. I've heard that reported before, so I don't know how current that is, but what is brand new and current, is that um, they are doing a television series of Friday the 13th. And it's a super meta uh, version that doesn't include Jason Voorhees. So what you have is um, the legend of Jason Voorhees as it kind of appears in the films or specifically, you know, Friday the 13th part two. But in real life, there's a backwoods, um, deliverance kind of killer who's the quote-unquote real Jason. Um, and I imagine he might be something more like the Jason that appears in part two. But in this world, everyone's aware of the legend of the hockey mask Jason. So, um, okay. I don't know. It's kind of confusing. The biggest letdown about it, because I think that's at least interesting and something different um, than they've done before. The biggest downside is that the company who's most interested in distributing this is the CW. Um, So that's going to mean no violence beyond a kind of PG to PG 13 rating. And uh, wow. Yeah. That's kind of depressing. And it could be worse. They could have made uh, the killer a ambulance driver. (laughs) So basically Sean Cunningham announced this at a horror convention this past weekend. The show will take place in the fictional town that is supposed to have inspired the Friday the 13th movies, making it a fictional place that fictionally inspired a real series of films in which real life in real life were totally fictional. But within the fiction are based 
on fact, I'm sorry, I'm butchering this. I can't. I don't know why I can't. No, read I, I, I'll be honest with you. You're probably reading it verbatim, and it's just confusing as all yeah. hell. <laughs> well, it, it reminds me of what they did with the the town that dreaded sundown. Yeah, it is similar to that. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's saying that you know within the world of these movies, the Friday the Thirteenth movies exist, and the twist is that although Jason Voorhees is a fictional character within these films. He was inspired by a real life killer who okay. appears in the show. Gotcha. I see. Okay, that's interesting. Right, well, that, that, it's almost it's almost like a like a scream slash stab type of scenario, I guess. Although yeah, so the, I guess the stab movies are even more directly based on what happened in Scream, so maybe this is even even a little more uh, obs- not obscure. What am I trying to say? You, you know what I mean? It's not quite as direct. Yeah, it's it's okay. bizarre, but at least it's something different. I I think that's great. Yeah, I almost like Texas Chainsaw Massacre based on Ed Gein, where it's not really based on anything Ed Gein had done or or anything. It's just sort of loosely based on that. I think. Okay, it'd be almost like if you did a show about Ed Gein in a world where the Texas Chainsaw Massacre existed. Yeah, gotcha. And that they were aware of, but see, I don't mind that, and I actually kind of like things that are meta as long as it's not like. As long as they're not like hamming it up for the camera or winking at the camera or doing things that are obnoxious. It seems like when filmmakers get into doing things that are meta or self-referential, they really are, they lay on it thick with the comedic side. And that really bugs me. It's like, Uh, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Yeah, but I don't think they'll do that this time because I think if you look at the horror shows that are out there now, you know, with um, with The Walking Dead and Bates Motel and stuff, so they play them pretty seriously. Yeah, and according to Sean S. Cunningham, this is a direct quote, the town's hormonal adolescent populace will be menaced by the, quote, real Jason, a, quote, more serious backwoods killer. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm actually up for that. I'm open to it. Um, it will be kind of weird not to have the hockey mask, though, and I, it sounds like they're probably not going to go with that. I don't know. It sounds like it. It sounds like it might be a throwback to part two, which was our listeners' favorite movie. So yeah, and I liked and I liked that look quite a bit myself. So yeah, yeah, and it's again very town that dreaded sundown ish. Yeah, I might just call it town that dreaded sundown instead of Friday the Thirteenth because <laughs> you're right because that. I mean that is what they where they drew the inspiration for Friday the Thirteenth. Mm. I mean for part two for the look of the uh, of the killer. That's where they drew the inspiration for that. Yeah, yeah. See, that's interesting. Well, nice. thanks, thanks for those news items, Wolfman Josh. Okay, well that just about wraps up episode forty nine of Horror Movie Podcast. We thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. I want to thank my good buddies here, Wolfman Josh and Doctor Shock, and we'll go around here and see if they have any plugs for us. What do you have, Doctor Shock? Just the normal, um, you know, the DVDinfatuation.com. Check out the blog. Check me out on Twitter at DVDinfatuation, all one word. Over on Land of the Creeps, we just did an interesting episode where uh, Greg. Jesse and myself took a look at the first ABCs of death, and uh, that was a lot of fun. 
And that's about it. I still, I, I'm not going to say anything more about the ebooks until I actually have an update. Uh, I know I can tell you I'm working on them, and I'm really trying to get something out there. Thank you to everybody who's who's uh, agreed to, to take a, a review copy. I appreciate that. Uh, hopefully, have an update on them sometime in the very near future when things are just looking a little bit a little bit more. Uh, I think things calm down a little bit. That sounds good. Okay, Doc. Thank you. What do you have, Wolfman Josh? Well, just uh, follow me on Twitter at Icarus Arts. Check out Movie Streamcast, where I'm reviewing the film Resolution from the directors of Spring. And yeah, I've done some other fun movies over there. I did um, a film that's a sci-fi film, but it kind of has a horrific feel to it. Under the Skin, we did with Cody Clark. That was a good review. Mm. So that, that was a lot of fun to discuss. It's a crazy movie. That's about it. I'm on uh, the Sci-Fi Podcast uh, reviewing Chappie, their latest episode. Nice. Can't wait. As for my plugs, I'd love it if you check out my little five minutes of horror segment. I've got this little short mini reviews that I'm putting up on SoundCloud with the hope that you'll share them with people to try to, I guess, proselytize or (laughs) spread the word and attract people over to Horror Movie Podcast here. Also, if you like general movies, like all sorts of cinema, then put out movie podcast weekly every tuesday where we review the new stuff that's in theaters and we cover all genres we love your comments here on the horror movie podcast so get involved in this awesome community that we have you can leave a comment in the show notes for episode 49 here or you can email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com and you can call and leave us a voicemail at 801-382-8789. You can find all of our episodes, including the weekly Horror Movie Podcast, which was the first inception of a Jay of the Dead horror podcast, and then Horror Metropolis, which was the second inception and horrormoviepodcast.com which is this show all that is on our website i want to thank fred ingram for the use of his music for the horror movie podcast theme song you can find more of fred's music at frederickingram.com i'll have it linked in the show notes for this episode and i think that's it for episode 49 we thank you for listening and join us again next friday for horror movie podcast where we're dead serious about horror movies Time out, cause I gotta go uh, kick my kid's ass. Cause somebody's li- somebody's downloading videos. Okay. I can tell because you guys are breaking up here. Okay. Hold on one second. I'll be right back. Okay, thank you. <laughs> the way he said that, I gotta put that in the outtakes. That's really funny. <laughs> yeah.